here we go. 250 waiting, quite good. We have got this evening more huge guests lined up, some of your favorites, and we have special emphasis because it's gone so viral. We have got special emphasis on the Royal interview with Oprah, and we've also got some Maxwell news as well, so we'll be covering that. Let me just say hello to the people in the live chat. There we go. Now, first hour is going to be live on YouTube. Then we are going over to Patreon for hours two and three. Links will be in the description box. So Behaviour Panel is going to be the first guest on YouTube until about 6.35. They're going to break down the Markle, Prince Harry, Oprah interview. 6.35 to 7, we've got a fellow from the UK, a soldier, who's trapped in Bulgaria. He was serving a life sentence for a murder he said he's innocent of. And in this prison, wow, absolutely brutal. Right, then we switch to Patreon, tiers two and above. We'll be able to watch it live. If you want to check that out, go down to the description box, check out the Patreon tiers. It's kicking off with Norman Baker, 7 to 7.30. He's going to be breaking down the controversial Oprah interview. 7.30 to 8. The Steeple Times editor, Matthew Steeples, is going to be discussing this news about Maxwell's house, the London house that we filmed at, where the housekeeper opened the door to us with the banister. The selling of the house and the dodginess that's going on there. 8 to 8.30, we have not reconfirmed with him yet, but tentatively it might be OG Shadow talking about the Mexican cartels. He's on the front line. He's going to have his face disguised as usual. Um, if OG Shadow is a no-show, we will be doing Q&A. Then 8.30 to 9, Republic CEO Graham Smith. He's one that people have been putting forward through for a long time to try and get him on. And of course, they want to abolish the royal family. So we'll be discussing that. If we have not done the Q&A by then, we will be extending until 9.10 to finish the Q&A. And I already see the behavior panel in the Zoom waiting room. So let's bring them over, shall we? There's so many of them. Bear with me. <laughs> so we got Mark, Gregory, Scott. Oh, did I click on the wrong thing there? Chase. There we go. Hey guys, how's it going? How are you doing? Good. How are you Hi, doing? Sean. Yeah, great. Thank you for rejoining. Are we all in? Yes, there we are. Yep. We're all in. Here we are. We're all in. And I'm sure you guys are well aware that this Oprah interview has become the most watched and talked about thing of the week. So yeah. to the viewers watching this who are obsessing over this subject, this is the behavior panel. Do you guys just want to just give a, like a one minute thing about what, what you, who you guys are, what you do, just for people who are not familiar again? All right. Well, I'm Scott Rasp, I'm a body language expert and analyst. I train law enforcement in the military in interrogation and body language. Mark? Mark Bowden, I'm an expert in human behavior, and I help people all over the world to stand out, win trust, gain credibility every time they communicate, including some of the leaders of the G7. Chase. 
<laughs> hey, I'm Chase Hughes. I did 20 years in the U.S. military, published the best-selling book on behavior profiling, influence, and persuasion. I teach government agencies and the general public in those topics. Greg? Greg Hartley. I'm a former Army interrogator, interrogation instructor, resistance to interrogation instructor. I've written 10 books on body language and behavior, and I spend most of my time on Wall Street and corporate America, and we collectively are the behavior panel. We do a show on YouTube once a week. We take any topic, nothing's precious, and we go after it. We take apart body language and behavior, and we look at symptoms of, of deception where the person's telling the truth. So that's us. Brilliant, succinct introductions, guys. Appreciate that. I know you've sent some general questions through. We're going to get to those after we hit the royal family stuff first. So you've got on one side uh, Piers Morgan and Megan Kelly saying, how surprising, I could have written this script. Piers has said that I'm gonna play the race card, I'm gonna play the mental health card, I saw all that coming, woe is me, 15, 16 million inherited from Di, complaining that they're getting cut off from the royal family. Who, who, how are we supposed to sympathize with these millionaires? Then you got the other side saying that it's absolutely horrendous what's come about in terms of race and mental health and that the monarchy is stuck in this old fashioned mindset and something needs to be done about it. And there should be a witch hunt to find out whoever the um, racist was in the family that said those things. So what struck out most to you guys? And did, did you think that Megan was being sincere when she was saying these things? It, it depends on which thing. We took a few of those to task. There's some baseline deviation in her in a couple of places around Kate and those kinds of things. And we, you know, we are not people who say, you're lying because you touch your nose. No, we take every little piece of that and take it apart. And I would, I'll, I'll throw this around to the other guys, but one example, the story about whether Kate, she made Kate cry, those kinds of things. We took that apart. Uh, this to me was nothing more than there's a lot of family issues going on. Families are complex, gritty things. And I think we're seeing the compounding of that. Um, Mark. Yeah, I think here's one thing we can all agree on definitely is that uh, the idea that she didn't Google her husband to be, that's complete <laughs> nonsense. Like it, it beg you know as well as I do, Sean, everybody out there knows that, you know, look, I, I Google my plumber and I'm not going to get married to my plumber. So, so, and, and, so it begs belief in the first place. And then we look at the clusters of body language and we go there's too much happening around that for that to be true as well so there's a good baseline on what happens when she's being a, a little bit uh, inaccurate about the the truth there but i guess the thing everybody wants to know is did that conversation around uh, color and children did that happen and uh, chase why don't you give us your view on on that as, as it stands I don't think it happened like she said it. And I think we all might have agreed on that on our video. I won't spoil anything. But I think a lot of the outrage that we're seeing here is if you're familiar with the term cognitive dissonance, we can form a cognitive belief without knowing it. So when we see rich people grow up and complain about something, these rich, successful people, We've had marketing jammed into our brains our whole life that says, once you become X, Y, Z, you will no longer have anything wrong with you. So that makes us pissed off that why are these people complaining about anything? Because we've, 
and, and of course they're capable of suffering. They're capable of having all of this horrible things going on in their life. But we get upset there. And I think a lot of what we're seeing, if you go back and watch any of the interviews, is this almost engineered codependence where she is kind of leveraging Harry's inherent need for approval uh, and, and making a codependent relationship. Scott? Yeah. And, I, and the thing I focused on was this thread that runs through there of narcissism where nothing's her fault. It's all somebody else. It's all the family. It's all the firm, all these things against her. And at the end, it's really interesting. Uh, the take we bring out on the, the last couple of things she says before we get out, because she completely turns the thing and blames it all. I don't, I don't mean blame as in she, I'm blaming you, but she turns it all and gives all the quote unquote credit to Harry. So that, that was kind of uh and I thought that was brilliant. I thought that was a brilliant tactical narcissistic move. So what was your read on Harry then throughout this? I mean, I was moved when he said he felt the presence of his mom and when he referenced Diana and he seems like he's a very professional speaker. I mean, I'm in the public speaking realm myself and he's very polished. So what, what was um, your interpretation of him throughout what stood out? Well, I mean, it's interesting, Sean, that you bring up that idea of being moved around the story in the spirit of Diana, because we are moved at the, I guess, the mortality of our gods. And Diana is has a goddess status. And when she died, we, we touched the mortality of the gods. And so what I'd say there, Sean, is we get moved by that because they're purposely hitting what we call a grand narrative there a story there that is so much bigger than us everyday mortals that sit here so uh, you know i, I want to say we've always got to watch out for how these grand narratives can touch us and and we've got to extricate ourselves a little bit from that and go well what's happening with kind of real people around this but but i would say the emotion uh, from Harry was was real and palpable, as much as it can be with him. We heard his voice crack when he talked about pain and his father having that pain. That pain is true. That pain is is real. I don't know, Greg. What did what did you see there? Yeah, I saw a tremendous amount of emotion, real emotion. Now, remember, everything that you're seeing in a person is filtered through their own eyes. So we don't know what happened in the conversation. This is a cloistered environment, the most cloistered, the royal family, among the most cloistered on earth. And so they create their own culture. They create all kinds of things that we would not even recognize as normal. And in fact, Megan says, I didn't know how to behave because, well, of course you didn't, because you're not born into that world. And there's a reason those folks all marry other royals, right? Because they all know how to live in that world. But I think as you look into this, there's some distinct body language, eye movement. We, when, when, as you're thinking about something emotional, if you think about last funeral you went to, you think about the most emotional moments in your life, you'll watch your eyes will drift down into your right. It's where all the dark things live, where all of our emotional side lives. And we saw a lot of that in accessing, talking about his father, talking about his relationship with his brother. So there's real emotion there. And as far as do I believe some kind of a conversation, to Chase's point, do I believe some kind of a conversation occurred that later came in to be about the child, you know, and about race, I think something happened because all the body language, all the cues are there. And if you watch what we talk about, we'll, we could spend the next, the rest of your show talking about nothing but that. So we'll stay off that. Anyone else got anything on that? Well, I, I think we're taking a look at there is, is controlled frustration on Harry's part. It's, it's there's a lot of emotions there, really a, a, a true emotion, but at the same time, 
I think the frustration of the problems he's having with his father and with his brother, not getting along with him. I think those show. And I think his body language shows that. We explained some of that uh, in this next show. But it, th that's the main thing that, that stuck out to me was the frustration and uh, a little bit of the sadness from that for him. Yeah. And you hear a lot of people say that they're pushing a narrative. They're pushing a story out there. I think she believes that. I think she believes all of those things. That she's faultless. Well, there was there was a bit of transference, actually, I'll, I say in the, in our show, there's a bit of transference, whether there somebody talked about Archie or whether someone simply said early in the game is exactly what Harry said. Early, someone said, what will your children look like? And then it was extrapolated to say it was about somebody said that about the unborn Archie. I don't think that was the case. I think if you go back and watch it, his emphasis and where he puts all of that focus, something happened. It was about her. And then it was, of course, commuted commutative all the way down to the child so yep so do you think she was playing dumb then when she said yeah celebrities are all over the place out here go to england meet this these uh royal celebs didn't expect it to be any different and then whoa well i i always say there's a thing called informed consent you think or or dunning kruger you you think you know what you don't know until you get there and so you could arrogantly, if you say, hey, I didn't know, that sounds awfully arrogant. I'm going to wander into the royal family casually. You know, not being a Brit, Mark has a better feel than we do. Not being British, of course, we got rid of our royalty in 1776 with a lot of work. <laughs> but we don't feel the same thing or understand that feeling, of course. But we certainly would recognize the presence of a queen. It would what feel about, odd. What about the art, the art of curtsying? Well, I, See, I, think I, think she, I think she looked into all those things. I think she Googled that stuff. And you know I, what? I, she, she she has a double major in international relations from Northwestern. Theater. Theater. Before this happened. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, that, so I think she she knew about that stuff. I just don't think she was very good at it. I don't well, think I she think, could, I think, I think here's, here's the thing, off. is that until you get actually touching close to, to that particular family, you cannot understand just how wacky it is. It is Tiger King's wacky. It is milk at 3 a.m. in the morning. <laughs> like I got tigers in the back of the car. Wacky. It they just stuff happens where you go, they do, what? They're doing that's what you said what? It is off the charts. It's like nothing you've ever seen, seen before. I think that that saying that I was there's no class for that. There's no no one taught me how to do that. That way, if I did something wrong, I can blame it. The blame is not on me. It's because I wasn't right. taught to do the right thing. Sure. So now I'm just shifting like this might have been my fault, but somebody could have taught me better. And yeah. I wasn't provided yeah. that opportunity. Well, I think, again, the difference is, is, is there's the blame you can put when you're not trying to be part of the family, but you may be trying to serve that family, you're trying to help them. You can go to a colleague and go, that is nuts happening over there. And the colleague will go, yeah, yeah, yeah it's just... It's just plain old crazy what happens over there. But when you're actually marrying into that thing, I can't understand that because now you've made some kind of psychological and legal contract to be to be part of that thing that you're looking at and going, how does that work? Why does that get to do that? Why did it say that? It is, and it, there's nothing else like it on the on the on the planet. Well, it's a show and an image, right? Yeah, at the same, image, right? yeah, at the you same have time, to manage you... that. You'd think her, her husband would have, you know, if, if, if my wife and I were, gonna, were part of something or I was part of something, she was going to come in. 
I know she would say, what's, what's up with it? How do you do this or that? What do I do? And he'd say, let me hook you up. My cousin can help you. My sister can help you. They're one of them. That's, that's it's like, Scott, no, it's like any, right it's like any system. He's part of that system. He doesn't know. He has no idea what he's in. He has no, I think he just has zero idea. He's the, the son of a goddess. It's how do you handle, how do you know? Of a country. <laughs> right. Of a kingdom. Right. Like, how do you deal with that? You can't go, okay, here's how we handle it when we're, we're sons of goddesses, uh, you know, killed in an epic, epic way with huge amounts of conspiracy around that. One of the most amazing stories that the world has ever seen. Here's how you deal with that. I don't think he knows. Well, we also project onto him because we watched him grow up and everybody that sees someone on TV like this believes they know him because they've watched him. They, it's like Brady Bunch to them. They think that the person they see is who he is. They have no idea who he None of us have any idea who those people right. are because we're not close to them. Well, and they even tried to help us with that by just calling him Harry. It's just Harry. That's my, my dad's name. It's like, <laughs> it's just Harry. <laughs> What's his second name? Well, it's Wales. <laughs> it's, like, it's like he's named after a whole country that he's there. His father is the is the subjugative representative of. It's like he's barking mad. So whether Megan's game plan was premeditated social climbing or idealism, like you pointed out, Mark, it is a crazy institution. We've had a taste of that through the crown. All the royal glitz and glamour and money and prestige in the world still can't prevent what could happen in here. And those forces are so powerful that perhaps, you know, the, the, the mental health issue was genuine. Do you think she was playing the mental health card or those pressures did get to her? I think for anybody who says that there's not uh, help available at the palace like oh you know we would help you but we've got to go all the way out to walmart or we've got to go all the way down to the hospital to get medical care at the palace or in the royal family i i would think that's probably not correct well and and who knows images everything and there could be stigma i mean there was a time in the u.s military when there's stigma attached to ptsd for example and that's gotten a lot better now but you know, when I was in an operations unit in JSU as well, there back in the day, if you went in for mental health, you were probably pretty gone. Mm. Yeah, and so you've got to understand you that, to take that, that, into account. that the royal family have been dogged by mental health. I mean, there would be one, you know, there'd be one analysis that basically we lost a country due to the madness of King George. So this, this, yeah. this madness, this idea of the moment anybody in the royal line can be attached to madness. I mean, they would literally take... Their, their relatives and lock them up at any sign of being ill or any mental health issue, like stick, stick them in a cupboard, pretend they don't exist. And so there is a history here of you don't handle uh, health in the same way that, uh, that we now in a modern world handle health. I'd also say this. So I raised my hand, joined the army for the U.S., went in, was like, what the hell did I sign up for like day four? You're thinking, why am I doing this to myself? 
Now imagine, you know, of course the army has a really good method of making you comply and pretty quickly you're just one of the guys and everybody else is miserable too, so, so what, and you get through it. But if you think that you're going to be Cinderella and you suddenly realize, no, Cinderella, you're, you're the image of Cinderella and there's a hell of a lot of work to do that, you might be second guessing that at that point, that now you're Cinderella back cleaning the chimney is what you feel like. So if you get there and you, and you want to change the game, well, you've just signed up for a hell of a contract there, so I think it's tough for a person to back out. Now, does that mean that it makes you suicidal? No, I mean, people who take their life are in a very dark place most of the time. I don't know where she was. We can't see, we can't guess. If you've ever been close to anyone who committed suicide, you you don't know how they get to that point. So I don't I don't try to second guess anybody who says mm -hmm. I was close to death. I never do. Certainly the emotion that she shows when she talks about that comes right. on fast like a real emotion. Yeah. So now that's not to say she's not good enough as an actress to be able to move one emotion from one thing over to something else. It's a possibility. If that's the case here, she does that very, very well. It's that's a real emotion that's that's happening there. Do you think that the royal family are so dysfunctional that even though they have all the resources in the world to get the best therapists and mental health help in the world, if we look at Di, how that's portrayed and, and what she wrote in her own book, in her own words, when they were having problems marriage-wise, they brought Jimmy Savile in as a marriage guidance <laughs> counselor. It doesn't get more dysfunctional <laughs> than that, does it? There so is a think, circus, Mark. Yeah. Do you think perhaps that Megan was suffering in the same way that Di was? She was being signaled out and she wasn't getting the help required? Or that's just preposterous because she could have just well, picked up we, the phone We and... can't really see that from here because remember what we're doing is studying behavior and symptoms of behavior. And the genesis of that behavior could be something else. So a lot of times, for example, when you question somebody and they give you information that's perceived through their eyes, it's not at all what happened because of stress and, and, and. So we're, we're studying emotions, we're studying behavioral symptoms, and we're the last guys to tell you can read her mind, right? That uh, Scott has a friend who thinks we're in the mind reading business. Oh, yeah. Every time I talk to him, he goes, well, so how's the uh, mind reading business going? He thinks that's what we're doing. God, he <laughs> pretends to think that anyway. So are you are you, have you scored um, Megan and Harry on the narcissist scale? Have you, you, got, you got a comparison? I, I think she's a little bit, a little higher than he is. I think her whole thing's come from that, that point of view. I don't think she's a, a lot of people will say since all psychopaths are narcissists, but not all narcissists are psychopaths. I don't think she's anywhere near that uh, level, but I think she's probably most likely a clinical uh, narcissist is what I would call that um, from, from her vernacular to the way she talks about everything right out of the gate. Nothing is her, her fault, but accepts all the praise. Yeah, and one of the Piers Morgan criticisms was that if you look at her life history, friends, family members have all been dropped and she's never spoke to them or they're, you know, they're ostracized somehow. Yeah. And he said that pattern was very worrying. Would you concur? Yes, yes. that's yeah. the way they act. That's what a narcissist does. If, as long as you can't, if you can't do anything for them anymore, you're out of the way. And so what she does is, or one of the things that I've, I've noticed about her from, from, uh, having after watching that show yesterday or after doing our, our show yesterday going through watching stuff she does the classic narcissistic um, 
plants or feeding to people who follow her. And what they do is this, they will, they'll, they'll be really nice to someone. They'll love bomb them, flood them with, Oh, you're wonderful. You're this, you're that. And that makes the oxytocin fire off in their brain. Serotonin makes them connect with that, with, with that narcissist. Then nar the narcissist cuts it off. And when they cut it off, they want that person comes back for more. And just as, just before that person cuts off completely and, and goes mean, they'll give them a little bit. They'll just kind of dole some out to them. So they come back and snatch that up and it keeps them hooked to that. It's nothing like, it's not like heroin or something, but psychologically it's potent and powerful when they start that. Yeah, I think what I usually say is they look like they fall in love fast and fall out of love fast. So they grind through resources. They see people as res they may not intellectually see people as resources, but they grind through people like crazy. And most of the time, it's not deliberately ma malicious. Right. right. It, they do believe they're doing the right thing. They do care about these people that, that they're happening to. And there is when they fall in love fast, that's real love. They feel love when they fall in love. And one benefit that we have with Megan that all of us typically don't have when we watch these episodes is the final diagnostic criteria from a clinical standpoint is be able to observe relevant past behavior. So, and we finally got a chance to do that. Just, just to your point, Sean. I think one so, last thing, Sean, is that, you know, any, any view of Piers Morgan on this, we have to understand he has two horses in this race at the same time. And so he has, uh, you know, that's why he stormed out. He's, he's getting these, he's getting his horses mixed up as to what he's got in this, his race. And he, he realized he needed to extricate himself from it. So from the body language and the conversation, then could you assess who was the pants or trousers rather in this country in that relationship? Well, interestingly, we, we talk about culture and culture is everything when you're talking about body language. And when you get further into a culture, you get to microculture. They were holding hands and that's where the tell is. If you watch them holding hands, that's nothing. But they're gripping in odd ways and they're using their hands to communicate. And there's more than one time where he corrects and stops her from talking. In fact, one time he does that. There's signaling or regulating a word, a word that means how you control the conversation so that he gets to talk when he wants to talk. She does the same thing. And Chase, I'll let you point out what she did. Yep. With the research. Yeah, I think he's answering a question and she starts stepping on top of him, but not in just a way where she continues speaking in a way that a parent would do where we start the sentence back from the beginning. So that make sure you don't miss a single one of my points. I'm going to start this over. And we have a part of our brain called the uh, superior parietal lobe. It's back here in our motor function area. And that's where most of our mirror neurons are stored. We see someone else do something and we kind of match that same behaviors. We see Harry, and I've, I've just found out all of these people uh, recently, but we see him matching Megan much more often than she is matching him. So I would, I would say the person with the least amount to lose is typically in control of a relationship. And I think that's definitely Megan in the situation. And in this case, I'm sure being British guys, you, you, you two, Mark and Sean, you're, you're familiar with the black adder with that, with that series. And <laughs> yeah, it controls everything. I believe in my, from my point of view, I think there's a lot of that going on where she gets a lot done through him by planting things and saying, I wish we could do this or have somebody. So I, th I think she's, she's, she's using him not as a pawn, but she gets all the stuff yeah, done for everything she needs done. But, so but I, like do see, I do see plan. sharing. <laughs> I do yeah, see exactly. sharing. There is one place that we didn't cover in our show that I'll mention here where she says, 
we genuinely didn't have a plan. That's a push-pull word. It means that's a negotiation point. Why would you say genuinely if you didn't have a plan? So there, when I hear that, I jump on that. But I, I don't see a domineering kind of a thing. I did. No. I saw, you know, a partnership. Maybe one has the upper hand. So partnership then, partners in crime, in sync perhaps to an extent, but looking at the life history of Megan, people are just used and dropped. Do you think the relationship is sustainable then? It's, it's serving uh, her neurochemicals uh, as, right now. as of right now. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, I, and it's I, going to be my first thing divorce. was My first comment was this will be an ugly divorce. That's the first I thing think, we're going to start getting texts from Greg. Greg, that's what it was. First thing I out would, of the gate was, "Wow, this is going to be a bad divorce." I'll soften that a little bit. In the in the different context, the the relationship may well play out differently within exactly. the context yeah. of the royal family. I mean, what what relationship has been sustainable? I, like you tell me, how many relationships are, are sustainable? Even the ones that look sustained have a lot of complexity and other people uh, involved. Uh, so there's a lot of other contracts made to make relationships sustainable within the royal family because it isn't the same world. Now, they have moved to what looked to me like a paradise, a literal walled garden that they were that they were in. And so uh, is it sustainable in that paradise? It could be, actually. You know, within that world, it, it may be possible. When relationships change, people evolve. So you don't know. I mean, if it goes that way, it will be a, a nasty, nasty. The other thing I think you can't overstate here is he is leaving a world that he has grown up in his entire life. There's probably a certain amount of freedom with that. And who knows where that will lead. And I, if I watch him and I go back and see other, other interviews with him, there's certainly some trauma. His 12-year-old trauma is visible at times when you watch him in, oh, in yeah. an interview. So that affects people and how, they, how they're going to move forward. And Mark, you said it best. It's the same, like this long-term relationship can evolve based on what inputs they get now. So yeah, we, they're not condemned as, by any stretch, right? As soon as her spell wears off, which she's got on him, as you can tell when she's when he's looking at her the way she looks at him and she looks at him like she looks at nobody else not like the loving wife looks at someone but like the acting like a loving wife looks at someone and when that narcissistic spell wears off man that's what i think it's going to be it's going to it's going to get ugly up in there really quick so you've analyzed the interviewees what was your take on oprah i thought she did a great job I thought she did really. There were some things where she could have asked questions differently sure. and waited a lot longer for uh, for them to answer, so we could get a look. But I think she's she's tight with them, is, is friendly with them, so she doesn't want it to get out of the road. So I think she she was asking great questions, but her approach was a little different this uh, this time than it is with some other people, where she really wants to get down to what's going on, because I think the relationship is there. That's what I got, Greg. What are you seeing? Yeah, I, I thought typical Oprah. She's good at rapport building. She knows them, that helps, but she's good at rapport building and bringing out something to make her audience build rapport with the person so they feel the pain they're feeling in that. And so a lot of her questions are intended for there. As the guys are saying, she doesn't do harsh things, but she does a really harsh question for for Harriet, the end, and puts him in out in traffic in front yeah. of his wife when she simply says, did she save you? Well, uh, how, how would any sane person answer that question sitting right next to the person you're asking it about? So really good good questioning and she did develop rapport made the person have value and then you feel their pain mark how do you think she went 
Yeah, I mean, the rapport is clear. If you look towards the end of the interview just with Oprah and uh, Meghan, you see both of them mirroring exactly the same gesture. Uh, Oprah is a little more open. Meghan's a little more closed because she she has a hand around her, her stomach area uh, for, for pregnancy reasons. But ultimately, huge amounts of mirroring. At the same time as that being good rapport building, to an extent, I wonder whether uh, Oprah is being drawn into that rapport as well. I would suggest Megan is as good a rapport builder as yes. Oprah is, and they're playing each other in exactly the same game. That that's a little questionable, I would say, for you know how blunt you can be as an interviewer or interrogator in this situation. I, I, that's all I'd when say. You know someone. Yep. I what think is, the one thing Oprah did that she responded to other per, the other person's stress by trying to fix it instead of trying to use it. So she saw discomfort and immediately wanted to stop the discomfort. And I think she could have gotten a lot more. Of course, there's they've got a relationship there. Mm -hmm. I guess well, at the end of the day, I, I, what we're not doing is saying we know everything that happened here because we can't. What we can do is tell you what we see. And what I saw is a, a tale of a family that's got problems, and this is a compounding issue, and then stuff just spun out of control. That's what I think. But What did you think about the part where Harry said that his brother is trapped in the institution? Who defines trapped? Mm. Like right. the, the rules are so rigid that he's just a, you know, a cog in the machine, basically. That's, that was my interpretation. Yeah, but my only question is, does William feel trapped? So while he may feel trapped, Harry may, because he knows that he has to live by these rules and he's like sixth in line to be king. Well, if I were going to be king, I might feel differently about that. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's a whole different conceptual positioning. It's a different it's trade. Like, it's like, I'm really trapped because I'm seventh in line or whatever. Yeah. And so is my brother, who's definitely going to be king. It's yeah. like, no, they're Very not different. the same. It's not the same situation. Yeah, I can stand in water up to here for a while for the right purpose. You know, that's not trapped. Trapped like the Queen's sister. All right, so we're we're almost uh, we've got a few minutes left. Then, do you guys just want to give us a little bit about how you all came together? What's the highs and lows been? Favorite topics, that kind of stuff. Sure, sure. Yeah. Well, when we well we we got together, we we'd all been talking about doing videos together. Chase would text me, "Let's do a video," and and Mark was like, "We should do a video," and Greg's like, "We should do a video." But we were doing that to each other. Then finally, Greg said, look, let's just all let's get everybody together and, we'll, and let, let's do something. Doesn't matter what it is. So I sent out this little video to everybody and I said, hey, Greg and I were talking. Why don't we all four get together? And Greg's idea, why don't we get together and we'll do one video and we'll put it on YouTube and, and see what happens. Mark? Yeah, well, so we put this video on. It was Tiger Kings. We had great fun doing it, and and people started watching it. They seemed to to like it. So we were like, okay, well, let's do another one of of those then. And uh, and and off we went. And and I, I guess one of our first real highs on that, though Tiger King was immensely fun, uh, was doing Prince Andrew because people really responded to that. I think because they were getting a view on that Andrew interview that they hadn't seen before. I mean, it's such an incredible interview. And I think we brought some insights there that people hadn't seen before. Um, so that was a real pinnacle for us. And, and we started thinking, maybe we've got something here that, that could be valuable on a lot of uh, different subjects. 
Yeah, so um, I was doing a podcast there in the UK, actually, for Elfie and Leaf, and they actually suggested Prince Andrew. I'd not paid much attention. And when we pulled it up, we're like, holy, this is a wonderful one to give us. So that was a great gift. And it just keeps giving. The Tiger King was a kid I knew who said, hey, you guys got to watch this. It's crazy. So that, those are where the places came from. And then we all, it's been a great partnership. I think we were most excited when we hit 1,000 views, remember? Yeah. And <laughs> so you know what? Our first video we ever released, it started, it started getting a whole lot of views. And I thought... Yeah, Scott. Scott paid somebody to, <laughs> to engineer this thing. It's like, there's no way somebody's interested in this stuff. And then a few months later, we're on Dr. Phil, and it continues. This is my favorite part of the week is when Thank we you. all uh, yeah. just hang out, because we're on there for probably an extra hour and a half aside from the recording. We're just hanging just goofing out. off. Yeah. Yeah. We're just hanging out like like buddies and then and we're geeking on body language and behavior. So yeah, if you we enjoy our geeking, we appreciate stuff. it. Yeah. We love talking about this stuff and we love it that people are interested in us talking about this stuff. And you know, that's the main thing is there's a whole group of us across the world, panelists who who want to get into this and explore this area. We're, we're just fascinated by human behavior and body language like everybody else out there. Yeah. So and our favorite kind of, was probably Andrew, easiest to do, yeah. like falling off a log. Least favorite mm. child murders. We hate. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So Chris yeah. Watts is particularly, particularly bad. I mean, in many ways, um, serial killers are much easier to understand, sure. I think, than than somebody like Chris Watts. It's very hard to understand, like, how did you let that? How did you end up going down that road? At what point? Did you not pull back and go, no, this has gone too far now? Like what has to happen for, so I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know whether anybody fully understands, uh, you know, that route um, as much as they would understand somebody like Ramirez, who we looked at, um, where it's, it's a lot clearer why he's doing what he's doing, even though he pretends not to tell you, you kind of know why he's, why is he, he's enjoying, he likes it. Just I usually say we cover politicians, murderers, and other liars. <laughs> <laughs> and this is sort well, of like one of those AMSR things. If you've ever seen those where people eat something, they'll get real close to the microphone and you'll hear their mouth. And eat. So we run the impression that it was like that. For, how can anybody like that stuff? Well, we're nerding out so hard on this stuff. We're thinking, how can anybody like this? Yeah. So that's, that's, that's what was our initial reaction to all that. You've got to be kidding me. Who like, you know, who wants to listen to this? You know, so. Well, Scott, Mark, Chase, Greg, really appreciate you hanging out this evening with us. The viewers are absolutely compelled, raving about you in the in the live. So I'm going to urge the viewers to go down into the description box and support the work of the Behavior Panel. And if you've not seen the videos that they have referenced this evening, I urge you to go and check them out because it is absolutely fascinating stuff. So huge thank you for coming on again, guys. It's always a great pleasure. Thanks, Sean. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. See you later. Cheers. Bye now. Bye-bye. Right. So now we have our next guest coming in. Let's put these guys in the waiting room. There we go. Waiting room. There we go. All right. So we've got our next guest coming in. Jock, a UK soldier trapped in Bulgaria. Let's see how this is because he is um, trapped in... He's broadcasting from a garage right now. Love to find out if we can somehow help help Jock get out of the country. But we're also going to hear the brutal 
Bulgarian prison conditions. Neo-Nazis, guards chaining prisoners up and having them bite each other's faces. Hey, Jock, how's it going, man? Hey, Amy, I'm uh, sorry for the shit uh, lighting. I'm uh, in my mate's garage under the, under the house. Hey, you sound very clear and we can see you perfectly. So everything's good at this end. Okay. Really appreciate you coming on. And you've yeah, got no, a hell of a story. You were, or I don't know if you still are, classified as a UK soldier. You went overseas. Uh, yeah, I was on holidays. I was only there for a short t- time. Actually, I'm not even sure if I'm still classified as a British soldier. But I, right. they just they just stopped. One day they just stopped turning up and talking to me. So I just presumed that they kicked me out. But I never was actually told anything. <laughs> yeah. So you're out one night in Bulgaria and there's a fracas. Was that what happened? Yeah. Uh, what happened was... Um, I saw, I, I was uh, looking for a mate of mine, um, a, a British friend. Uh, he'd walked off and we were worried about him because he had a, um, he had a mohawk and a piercing um, on his nose. And uh, we were worried that some neo-Nazis would pick that up and attack him or something like that because it happens, it, it's like not every day, but let's say maybe weekly. Um, neo-Nazis uh, target foreigners and uh, target people who look like punks. Um, and so we were worried about him. We weren't looking for him. And as we were looking for him, we saw a group of 15 neo-Nazis chase down and beat a guy. They, um, I don't know, if I, if I say the N-word on YouTube, are you going to get Yeah, don't, don't, don't say the N-word. Just, just reference <laughs> it as the N-word. They, they um, referred to the person in the Bulgarian language uh, by the N-word in the Bulgarian version. Uh, uh, and I, under, I knew that word because I'd lived in Bulgaria before uh, for almost a year. Um, and I knew the word and I recognized what was happening. And um, they, chased, they chased him down and I stood up to see. I was, I was actually hiding from the group because I just I didn't want to confront them because like, what the hell for? I'm not, I'm not out for a fight or something like that. So I was actually hiding from the group um, when they were walking up. And uh, so when they started chasing down the, the Roma, it was a, a young Roma boy. When they started chasing him down, I stood up to actually see if he escaped. And the minute that I saw that they tripped him over and jumped on him, the 15 of them, then I went to rescue him. And um, then they started attacking me. And I took out a knife that was in my pocket and I held it above my, my head and I started shouting in Bulgarian language, go back, go back, uh, which they did. But then there was a group of them that was trying to come around me, you know. So it's like some of them are going back and the others are trying to come around behind me. And I understood that. So I was like having to zigzag to keep them all in front of me, you know. And then um, then they beat me with, uh, again, they attacked me again with stones. Uh, and then I thought, okay, enough is enough. Um, and I turned around and I walked away. And at that point, no one had been injured other than myself. Um, I turned around and walked away. Uh, and you can see in the video that we found um, in 2019. So this is 2007 I'm speaking about. In 2019, we found the video from my trial, which was in the case file, but we were never given a copy of it. We were never allowed to see it. And you can see in the video how as I'm walking away, the whole group, the whole 15 of them just come rushing up behind me and attack me from behind again. And then maybe a minute after that, you can see... um, one of the neo-Nazis, he, he's, he, he, he stumbles and then falls down dead. 
and he was stabbed in the heart. So we know that he, the moment that he was stabbed, he died instantly. So we know the chronology of events that it wasn't me who um, had attacked them. We know that um, even, even after they had attacked me the first two times that none of them had been injured. And it were, it looks like probably what is most likely that happened was um, uh uh, the the neo-Nazi who died, he ran up very fast behind me and I turned around quickly to see what was happening and we, we've hit into each other. And there was a, um, a witness who never came to trial who actually contacted um, my lawyer and actually told him um, that they are a witness. And that's exactly what they saw, that they saw that um, I was walking away and the guy came up behind me and then I turned around fast and the other guy couldn't stop in time and we clashed into each other. And then he's been stabbed in that moment, turned around and died. So 15 on one, don't they have self-defense laws in Bulgaria? They do, they do. They do have self-defense laws in Bulgaria and they're very... I would I, I don't know to call them liberal or what to call them, but they're very um, they're very broad and they allow um, they allow people to defend not just yourself, but they allow people to defend other people. They allow people to defend private property, communal pro- uh, government property, property of other people, private property of other people. You know, um, the problem was was that my trial was completely corrupt, and the my conviction was that I had attacked the fifteen for no reason. So that is the that is the like let's say loophole. It's like not even a loophole. It's just blatant corruption. So you have all the witnesses. You have video evidence. You have everybody there saying that there was a fight between Jock and the group of fifteen because of Roma, a Roma guy, right? So that's basically what everybody said. The police were witnesses on my side. Uh, the video evidence is on my side. The experts are on my side. The psychologists, a psychologist interviewed the neo-Nazis and even wrote in their analysis of them that, um, that, the, that the group of men um, didn't want N people, N word people in the center of Sofia. So like all the evidence is on my side. There's absolutely no evidence on the on the side of the prosecution or of the courts except for the neo-Nazis themselves. So the neo-Nazis, they said they were walking along the street, minding their own business. And then I jumped out of the shadows and started trying to kill them all. They don't, they don't know why they didn't defend themselves. They didn't do anything um, against me physically. And, uh, and then I killed one of them. And, that's, and then that's why they gave me um, 20 years prison. Sounds like they were doing some right-wing paramilitary cleanup exercise. We saw that. I saw that in uh, when researching Pablo Escobar. They send the killers in, the right-wingers, to get the homeless and and people like that off the streets, and they would kill them if necessary, um, yeah. torture uh, them, and do do all these things. And, and they are of course connected to some, some some very powerful people who could interfere in the court process. So you got found guilty, sentenced to 20 years. What were the prison conditions like? Uh, it's not really a prison what you would consider a prison in a um, modern sense. Um, it, it's just uh, a cement box. <laughs> it's just a cement box. Um, there are no, there's no activities. There's no work. Uh, like uh, it took me eight years to get work in the prison. Uh, so for eight years, I had no work. I started a distance degree from Australia. The prison not only didn't help me, but like repeatedly tried to stop me from that university degree just as, a, as another form of repression. They stopped me, I think, three or four times. 
I, I made, I think, three hunger strikes in the prison. I sewed my mouth up uh, with needle and thread three times. Um, uh, so it, it just basically the majority of prisoners there, they go crazy. And uh, like, you, you know yourself, I, I read a little bit about you, but the majority of prisoners just start uh, using drugs, especially heroin. Heroin is very big in organ prisons. And when you're, when you're 24 hours a day on a bed, just looking at the ceiling, um, a lot of, well, it's mostly men. There are not so many women. So, a lot of uh, so the a lot of young men um, to escape the monotony and the boredom, they start using heroin. And actually, a lot of them go into prison for very minor offenses and then come out complete drug addicts. And it's a nightmare. And I've said it often that Bulgarian prisons are um, more um, a more of a danger and more of a threat and more of a problem to Bulgarian society than by not putting these people in prison because you're 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 creating an entire generation you're creating an entire you know group of people addicted to heroin and when they go out they steal from their family first until their family don't have any money and then they steal from their neighbors and their friends and I mean you've you've probably seen it yourself yeah that that keeps the prison industries in business they don't rehabilitate them they just (laughs) come out with bigger drug problems so you sold your mouth i mean i'm not even talking about bigger drug problems i'm talking about people who never had drug problems like like some young idiot who's full of testosterone and 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 gets into a couple of bar fights and then he goes to prison for a year or two and um because bulgaria doesn't have very many systems for keeping people out of prison so there's there's basically no probation system it's very rudimentary there's no system of like gps tagging people they've basically they steal all the money from every um every institution the money stolen so so like basically they've been talking about (laughs) there was a newspaper when i went to prison in 2008 and it said bulgaria now has gps tags now the prison population will be reduced because offenders will be able to do their probation and their time uh, or wait for trial on gps tags and it's now 2021 and and just i think the i think the i think for all of bulgaria there's like one or two people on gps tags so you sewed your mouth up three times. Yeah. How did you get the resources to do that, the determination, and how painful was that? Uh, it's not so painful. The 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 actual the act of sewing it is not so painful as much as um like you know like the hours and the days after, because um you know it starts to tear and it starts to hurt and starts to agitate your your skin and your flesh and your your lips and of course the hunger strike as well is not uh is not so easy um i get uh, what i did was basically it was only in very like dire situations so um it was basically the times when i just said f this uh, it, i've had enough i want to die so the last time this happened was um 2019 and it was the biggest and longest hunger strike i did it was 30 days i didn't eat and basically what i did was i waited five days so i didn't eat for five days because the hardest part is the first three four days you know after you've passed three four days your blood sugar level is so low that you you, you don't even want food so much you know but the first couple of days it's very difficult so what i always did was i always made a hunger strike without telling anyone for a couple of days and then i declared it officially and formally to the prison uh or served my mouth up and and did it formally and um at that stage um it it 
for me psychologically it was easier so i knew i was going to be serious about it and you know not declare a hunger strike and then start eating the next day um and uh yeah um but uh you know i always um i always sewed my mouth up with the same music i had a mp3 player and the first time i did it i did it like to calm me down and then the second and third time it was just a tradition it was um I've forgotten the name of the band. Is it Rancid? I'm not sure, but it was uh, Ramstein. No, Rancid. Oh, Rancid. Uh, uh, but, Rancid. Or maybe it was Misfits. I'm not sure. I can't remember really because it was just on one of my playlists and it was just by chance the first song that I listened to and then it became a tradition for me. It was um, the, the lyrics are, uh, if you're going to scream, scream with me. <laughs> wow, what a quote. I always yeah. sewed my mouth up listening to the same music. Yeah, so yeah. is it is it true then that yeah, you the guards had the sure. prisoners fight while they were chained up and they would have them bite each other like dogs? That's yeah, uh I was told you you've seen that video. <laughs> um uh, it's not the guards specifically, it's uh some of the mafia guys, the the organized crime guys in prison who were doing that. Um and the the guards were working for them. So, um, like guards are, there are sadistic guards. There are guards who are beating and torturing people. But um, exactly this um, uh, was exactly what you're talking about. Was organized by um, some of the organized crime guys. To like, I mean, in the video, you can in one of the videos you can see the guards laughing in the corridor. Um, and so this is a this is a prisoner with a mobile phone filming this stuff in front of the guards. So the guards, it's, it's not the guards in that specific situation organizing it. It's, a, it's prisoners and yeah. And what were the worst things that happened to you while inside? Um, I mean, violence from the guards being beaten. Um, but I mean, everything like, uh, like I very quickly came into contact with the organized crime guys, the mafia, because they all work with, um, they all work with the guards, they work with the prison. Um, and they are like, there are very few independent criminals in Bulgaria at all. Like you, you the, the, the big, the big criminals and the ones who are violent and, uh, selling drugs and in control of, of the prisons, um, all of them are working for the police. All of them are working for the prosecutors or for the guards. Um, and that's how they get away with it. Because So if I walk up and punch someone, they're going to turn around, uh, the, you know, the, the guards are going to turn around and, and increase my sentence um, and really make life hell for me. But if they do it, then um, it, it's not a problem. Like it, it never happens. So, so they, they get protected. And so very quickly, I had a conflict with the mafia in the prison back in 2000 and. Oh, almost immediately, but like 2009, it really kicked off. So I went to prison in December 2007. So after about a year of prison in 2009, um, some mafia guys came to came to my part of the prison, and they just were used to commanding and telling people what to do. And at the time, I, I had just turned 21. It was my 21st birthday, um, a month before I was arrested. So. Um, so I was also the youngest by about 10 years in my part of the prison. So uh, I was 21 and every, and the youngest was like 30. And, and then like the youngest after him was like 40. <laughs> and, and then it's also, um, 
uh, it's not so much in the UK, but in the in the Balkans, um, it's still a very strong tradition that you you follow the orders of people who are older than you. So anyone who's a little bit older than you, you have to do what they say, and that of course put me in conflict with them straight away because you know mafia guys were giving me orders do this do that and i'm like excuse me who the hell are you to tell me what to do like and and they'd say and other people would say oh do what you do what he says he's a he's a big guy you know blah blah and i'm saying what he's a heroin dealer he's a heroin heroin dealer he's a piece of turd i'm not allowed to swear (laughs) he's a he's a he i don't give a i don't you know, I don't care about heroin dealers. I think they're the scum of the earth. Like, why why should I respect him? Um, yeah, a, a guy died in my case, but at least I was trying to protect somebody. And then uh, heroin dealers are going to come along and pretend that they are somehow superior to me and give me orders. So straight away, there was conflict between me and them. Um, and that was probably the worst thing that they then were using their money and their power and their connections to try to set me up. And it was the huge problem for um, for the for ten years of prison that the um, the organized crime guys were like paying bounties to attack me, to beat me, to throw contraband in my cell, uh, and these different things. And it was like a constant stress, twenty four hour. Um, I wouldn't say paranoia, but twenty four hours just on your on guard. Like who is walking past my cell? Is my cell door open? Um, who is coming in my cell? Because in Bulgaria you don't have individual cells. All cells, all prisons in Bulgaria have communal cells. So we were between um, between seven and fourteen people uh, in my cell. So and then and then you have to organize who is going to come to my cell. So the trick was that I learned early: always keep my cell full. So um, one guy goes out. I know a guy's going out. Uh, find a guy who I can trust and rely on to come and take his place before the bed is empty and the prison just puts some random guy there. So that was a that was really important was to keep myself full of um, people who I could trust. Jack, we, we, we've run out of time. Yeah, what, yeah, what's, it, what's it going to take to get you into the UK, into the studio, and we can get the full story out of you? Because 20 years... I, Sentence to 20 years in Bulgarian prison, you must have so many stories. How are we going to get yeah. you out here? <laughs> I, do. uh, I don't know. Uh, maybe I would need, um, I mean, I'm allowed to come, I think, for three months as a tourist. Uh, so it's possible that way. Um, I don't know if they would prevent me from coming because of my criminal record. Right. But, okay. uh, but, but Australians are allowed three months. Is there, is there anything um, that people watching this can do for you or contact you in any way or go on your socials? Yeah. Um, yeah. Thank you very much for asking. Yeah. I actually have to pay like 16,000 euros in, uh, in court fees now to appeal, um, to appeal uh, a Bulgarian ban on me from being in the European Union. Um, and so I really need help with that. Um, uh, I've already paid like 10,000 euros and I have to pay another 16,000 euros. So um, there's a fundraiser set up. I don't know. I don't think I've sent you the link. Um, uh, I guess you can find you can find the link on my Twitter account. Um, it's a lot of money, and I'm trying not to swear. I'm really trying not to get you banned from YouTube. <laughs> yeah, no worries. Send send the link send the link to Ash while I'm on Thank the you. uh and Ash can add that. It's just the, an absurd amount of money. I'm just really overwhelmed yeah. with it. Um, yeah, but yeah. it's the ban. The ban is connected to the 2007 situation so they said basically bulgaria has said that because um of the 2007 um fight which was me defending a guy against 15 people 
um, because of that, uh, I'm a danger to European society and therefore I should be expelled and banned. And uh, I, I, I guess I read that the same thing happened to you as well. Yeah, banned for life from America. All right, Jock, I'm going to have to end this here then. Thank you so very much. Yeah. huge thank you for coming on. I would love to hear more at some point. And I wish you luck with your struggle. Thank you very much. You too. Take care, my Bye-bye. friend. Bye-bye. Norman, good to be back. How's it going? It's fine. Yeah, it's been um, it's been an interesting week, hasn't it? And, uh, and my sales force of uh, Harry and Meghan has been out, out selling my books for me, I think. <laughs> you're a bit blurry on my screen but let me just ask the audience well, you're blurry on mine actually but there we are it doesn't matter very much this is modern technology for you could everybody see norman okay how is norman blurry norman do you ha- do you have a much about it i don't think what, what what windows have you got open right now um <laughs> Who knows? Are you, able to, are you able to close any other windows? Because I, I just didn't. No, I see what you mean. Well, I, I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. yeah let's try something. Yeah. Have, a, have a try of that. All right. I don't understand. And you know, having been a former government minister, you understand how to make a speech <laughs> to ten thousand people, but not to and actually not to work the photocopy. Yeah. I mean, so, <laughs> um, well, I've kind of closed everything else just about, so it was no better. I can't do much about it. All right. Now do a refresh of the window that it's open in. I don't even like you to do that, Sean. How do you do that? What device are you on? Um, I don't know. Some Hewlett Packard laptop. There's no point talking to me about technology. We're wasting time. Why don't I just stay blurry? It might just be a quick refresh. Um, in the top left-hand corner, there's like two little arrows, and then there's a circle that's an arrow. All right, and okay. You, I'll press and you that click, click on that circle. Let's see what we could do. Okay. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, it's the same. It's the same. All right. So what we could do is we could just like if if it if it's if it's looks this blue, we'll just put a photo of you up or something on, on, on the reissue of this. It's not too bad actually. Let's get going then. So yes, so much has happened. What struck out the most to you on the interview, the Oprah interview? Well, interestingly, they seemed quite relaxed. Um, although some of the things they were saying were far from relaxed. And obviously, the, the matters that press, the press have picked up on are um, are the matters to do with race, which was the most uh, explosive statement I think, which was made during the interview. That um, there had been questions asked about what colour skin uh, their child would be. I have to say, I don't think it was particularly surprising, because as I've set out in my book and the chapter, we are not amused. There's a long history of racist comments from the royal family going back generations. There's a litany of comments, which I list in the book. Um, So the fact that the family, as it is the firm, is still apparently making such comments should be no surprise to anybody. So what do you think about Piers Morgan's comments then? 
that he could have scripted what Megan said, that she was going to play the race card, she was going to play the mental health card, and giving the impression that she's a bit narcissistic and psychopathic? Well, she might be slightly narcissistic. I don't think she's psychopathic. And I think Piers has got his own agenda in terms of promoting himself. And I think he went completely over the top in his television rant when he walked off stage. So I don't have a lot of sympathy for that. But look, I mean, this is a civil war between the Duke and Duchess of Sussex. I live in Sussex, by the way. I don't think we know much about them in Sussex. It's a name that's been given to them. The Duke and Duchess of Sussex on the one side and, and the traditional elements of the royal family on the other. And any civil war, as any political party will tell you, that's been through one, no side ever wins. And they will be damaged by this. And the royal family, as a consequence, as a whole, will be damaged by this. So, you know, they are slightly self-indulgent. I didn't particularly like the idea of, of uh, Harry moaning about how little money he was getting from the public purse for security, for example. It's not clear to me why the public purse should pay for their security when they're no longer working royals. And it's not as though he's exactly hard up. He's just bought a, a house for several million pounds in the very expensive part of, uh, of California. So they're not short of cash, are they? So, um, you know, we don't, we don't pay security for David Beckham to go abroad. So why should we pay for um, Harry and Meghan to be there? So, I mean, they were a bit grasping in terms of their money, uh, which I didn't like very much. They seem to still have the idea that they, should, they, they deserve a support from the public at large, even though they're doing nothing, which I don't agree with. Um, but on the central point um, of how they were being treated, I think a lot of what they said rang true. And that's because um, if you look at what they said, uh, they were concerned about um, the, the hidebound nature of the royal family, uh, the ultra-conservative nature of how they behave, and the role women are expected to play. And we saw this, Harry, you know, we saw this from Harry's mother, Princess Di, that when a, an independent-minded woman with intelligence comes into the royal family, more intelligent than most of them who were there in the first place, then that's not liked very much. And she's American. Uh, she's from a different culture. She wanted to be her own woman. And those things are not wanted very much. And there was a quote back from when she first appeared on the scene. You know, we will train her behind the scenes until she's, uh, you know, a fully member of the royal family. You know, Kate has conformed. If you look at what she's done, she's changed herself. But she, she's changed herself in order to admit, fit the mould which they wanted. Megan wouldn't do that. And rather than embrace her and say that this is a, a chance for the modern royal family to emerge from the ultra-conservative nature of the past, they've simply closed the doors on her and tried to pretend nothing much has changed. Well, you know, things have changed. But I'll just give you one quote, Sean, if I may, from my book, which is um, the chapter on, on the racist elements. And it's a quote from Princess Margaret. Um, the Queen's sister. And let's be quite clear, the racist comments come thick and fast from all people in the royal family, except the Queen, actually. I've not found any comments from the Queen which are objectionable, but from Princess Margaret, her sister. Um, she said of the then president of Guyana, Dr. Chedi Jagan, she said, quote, he's everything I despise. He's black, he's married to a Jew, and furthermore, she's American. Well, that's not terribly far from Megan, is it, apart from the Jewish bit? Absolutely. So do you think then that there are parallels with what Megan experienced and what Di experienced? I mean, Di was a kid. Megan's more adult and savvy, perhaps. But you've got this idealism 
you know, of marrying a prince and living in a castle, and then you get in there, and in Dai's case, it seems there was no help for her. I mean, these people have got all the resources in the world. You think she would have had access to the best therapists and counseling and stuff like yeah. that, but they brought in bloody Jimmy Savile to help her. Yes. And, and Jim Me didn't fix it on this occasion. <laughs> and Megan is saying that she felt that isolation within the institution. Do you think that is a genuine thing then? Yes. Look, I mean, they're all image. The whole thing is a facade. And what goes on behind the facade is, is nobody's business as far as they're concerned. And that's what the Queen said today in the statement. We will deal with this in private. That's a way of saying we're not going to say anything else about it. You know, we've shut the door on this. That's what, it's, that's what that means. And the whole thing about the royal family is when a problem appears, they don't ever solve it. When they find rotten wood, which is what is, rotten wood is kind of what's happened to Meghan and Harry. When they find rotten wood, they don't replace the wood. They paint over it. This is how they behave. So they want to carry on as normal. So their idea of dealing with Harry and Meghan is not actually to take on board the serious points they've made. It's to try to find a PR way of continuing as they are. Do you think that with Harry and Meghan out of the royal institution, whereby if you and your wife aren't getting along, you need to get along to protect the entity, do you think that if Harry and Meghan have problems, then they would just get straight out get a divorce? Well, I mean, it's up to them whether they, at some point, I mean, I don't think they would force her to get divorced, if that's what you're saying. Um, but what I do think is that um, they, if they don't conform, this is the key point. People are expected to conform to some sort of regime, which has been there really for centuries, literally centuries. If you don't conform to it, then they're squeezed out or they're briefed against in this particular case. Isn't it interesting that there were bullying allegations made against Meghan a week before the broadcast? Now, uh, it, this goes back two or three years. Um, now, it may well be that she's difficult to deal with. It was the case, I believe, that she was kind of getting up at 4.30 in the morning for a yoga and expecting staff to be there and so on. So I'm sure she was quite difficult to deal with. But, you know, whether that's bullying or not, I don't know. But this goes back years to when she was there at the beginning. And it's only just suddenly emerged from the palace this week. Now, that's really bad PR spin. If the palace is concerned about bullying, which I don't believe it actually is, how come nothing's been done about Prince Andrew? Because Prince Andrew, the way he treats his staff, is absolutely appalling. You know, and again, I quote that in my book. But, you know, on, on occasions, he's insulted greatly his royal protection officers, Prince Andrew, including on one occasion when he annoyed him. He threw something down on the floor and said, now effing pick that up. I mean, this is how he behaved. And um, we haven't had an inquiry into that, have we, from the royal family? No, we absolutely have not. And Prince Andrew's got a lot more to answer for than that. And perhaps he's glad that this interview has took the heat off what's going on with him. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. It shows how, how, how sensational it is that Prince Andrew's actually been submerged. But Prince Andrew will come back. Let me, let's be no mistake about that. Um, the ghosts of Prince Andrew uh, are still there, rattling around in, in the in the sidelines. The ghosts relating to what happened to uh, Jeffrey Epstein, and we'll see more of that, I think, when uh, it comes to the um, uh, Ghislaine Maxwell trial. And she may, of course, give one of the American con um, equivalent of Queen's evidences to um, get herself a lower sentence by spilling the beans. But beyond that, um, you know, Andrew has 
got his fingers in the tills. And uh, as I set out in my book, uh, there's a whole range of issues to do with the finances, which he has to be held responsible for. And in my view, that's an unexploded bomb. So Ian Maxwell spoke for the first time in 30 years today on yes. BBC Radio 4. Did you listen to that? I didn't. I heard, I heard the report of it. I didn't hear him personally. He, they were discussing as to the existing friendship between Galen and Andrew and whether Galen would call Andrew as a witness on her behalf. Yeah. What yeah. is the reality of that? Could it be done whereby Andrew would not set foot on US soil by camera? Well, it's theoretically possible, but um, you know, Andrew will be wanting to avoid giving evidence like a barge pull, if that's a, not a mixed metaphor, um, or in the civil service terms, he will give every possible assistance short of actual help. Um, he's offered to um, help the FBI and everybody else, but he doesn't actually do anything about it. And whenever they ask him, it's, it's, the silence comes back. So he's desperately, desperately keen to avoid any sort of connection between her trial or anything else. He wants to bury himself away and hope it all goes away. Perhaps things that moved us the most in the Oprah interview were when Harry talked about the spirit of Diana being there and also yes. gave, a, gave a shout out to his brother, quite emotional, saying that his brother was trapped in the institution. So you got that bond between the yes. brother and the mother, the tearing apart of that normal family relationship. Yes. What was your interpretation of those remarks? Well, I mean, families are dysfunctional. Well, most families are dysfunctional in one way. So in that sense, there's no difference between that family and any other family. Um, I thought it was rather poignant uh, what he said about William and indeed about his father not returning his calls. And I suppose we all know families where people fall out and don't return each other's calls and so on. So in a way, that's no different. But I thought the description of Charles and William as trapped was a very interesting description. And I can see what he means, that there's somehow almost a kind of uh, external edifice which controls them as if no one can change it. Well, actually, you know, they can change it. They don't have to be trapped. They've trapped themselves by accepting the restrictions which are there. And Harry and Meghan haven't accepted the restrictions. They've opted out. Um, but, you know, Charles is going to be, have to change these restrictions. He have to change the royal family if he wants it to survive. You know, you can't any longer paint over rotten wood. You can't carry on with a royal family that's based in an imperial past that no longer exists. You know, if you look at the Benelux countries, the Scandinavian countries, their royal families have updated themselves. They have become part of the democratic institutions. That's why they've survived. And there are far fewer of them, by the way. You look at how many in, the say, the Dutch or the Belgian royal family, three or four of them. You know, front cover of my book, Picture of Buckingham Palace, 44 of them on the balcony. 44. What are they all doing? Why are we paying for these people? But we're the last imperial monarchy. We're acting as it's still the 19th century in the way that the Russian Tsar did, in a way the German emperor did, in the way the Austro-Hungarian Empire uh, used to run itself. We're the last one. And here's the difference. If you take, say, the Swedish and Norwegians, the king there, when he ascends the throne, takes an oath of allegiance to the constitution and to democracy. In this country, we have to take an oath to them, the unelected, to be their subjects. So do you feel sorry then for Harry having to live off his inheritance from Di, which was 16 million? <laughs> That's something a loaded question, Sean. Um, I'm not sorry about him living off his 16 million. I mean, he's perfectly comfortable. And he's found a happiness, I think, with, with Meghan, which is nice. 
and I wish them all the best. And he's got a family, and he's clearly comfortable with that existence. I'm sorry, in a sense, on, on a human level, that he's um, clearly fallen out with his dad or, or, or William and so on. But, you know, he's escaped. Let's look at it that way. He's escaped, and he's found another alternative existence. Um, so I don't feel sorry for him that way. Um, I feel rather sorrier in some ways for those who are trapped, to use his word. So in your book, you really break down the financials of these, let's not say parasites, rascals. Um, what revenue streams now and business ideas do you think Harry and Meghan will set about? Well, look, they're not short of cash, are they? Let's face it. They're not short of cash. They could live on, on what they've got and do nothing else the rest of their lives, probably. But, I mean, they've got these massive deals. They've got this, um, was it $3 million for a couple of uh, podcasts? So this suppose you're getting $3 million, Sean, for your podcast. <laughs> but they're getting $3 million for a couple of podcasts, uh, which is kind of suffocatingly, you know, sugary about how they've got the answers to the world and how the world needs to listen to their powers of wisdom and so on. I mean, it's all a bit sickening. But they're getting a lot of money for that. They've got this deal with Netflix, which is going to bring them in tens of millions of pounds or dollars, I suppose, over there. Um, you know, they're not short of cash, so there's no worry about that. They're getting paid a huge amount of money. And why are they getting paid that? It's not because they are the fount of all wisdom and because they've got information to impart to the rest of the civilization in a way that would change the world for the better, like the Dalai Lama. They're not like that. They're getting money because they've got HRH in front of their name. That's why. Now, they, they can't help that, I suppose, but that's why they're getting all this money. It's the Royal Connection. So they need to actually, I think, to be honest about it and dispose of that, it shouldn't be HRH anymore. They've left the royal family in effect. Um, so take that away from them. Let them get on with their lives. So I'm just going to put a because we're near the end, I'm just going to put a shout out now to the people watching this to see if they've got any questions for you. What is it that they're actually going to be doing for Netflix? Oh, they're making documentaries and all sorts of stuff. I mean, uh, including stuff about the royal family, I think. Um, but interestingly, they haven't had the opportunity to influence the crown. Does Norman think this has come out right now to take the heat off Prince Andrew from Rachel? Uh, no, I think the timing of this has been determined by Harry and Meghan in order to pursue their own... Um, Well, Norman has frozen, and I've been told to check the question box. Ah, there is a question box. Let's see. Ah. I see questions. Two questions. Big, long ones. Thank you. Three now. MDA, Sapphire, and MDA. Will Norman return? That is the question. Let's see. It is half past. Should we get on with our next guest, Ash? Because we appear to have lost Norman. Do apologise if we are unable to get him back. But um, I'm asking Ash now, what should we do? Yep, Michael's ready in there. We're going to move on. Sorry about that, guys. I think Norman's internet was a bit iffy, which may have caused the issues today with the blurriness of the screen, because we did close all of the boxes. Let's hope that our next guest is not coming through 
in a blurred fashion. And the next guest is Matthew Steeples. I'm going to go and click now and find Matthew in here. Let's see. That's page one. It's crazy that it doesn't separate the guests from the viewers, so I have to scroll through everybody. Matthew Steeples, here we go. Invite onto the screen. Yes. So we're going on to Maxwell stuff now. If you want to put Maxwell questions in the questions box, I will get on that. Hey, Matthew, how's it going? Hello, good evening. Nice to meet you. Yeah. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you. I hope you can see me clearly rather than... Yeah, I can hear you and, and yes. see you. Unlike the previous guest was a bit blurred, but you're much better. Yeah. Would you like to tell the viewers then, Matthew, what it is you do? Um, I, I publish a daily newspaper online which covers um, all sorts of different matters, but... Um, of late, we've had a lot of involvement with the Maxwell Epstein case. Um, and I did see your brilliant little video where you uh, visited Miss Maxwell's former home and met her cleaner or whatever she wanted to call herself. Um, opposite the the Belgravia pub, which I don't know if you went in there, but it's a pretty eccentric pub. Well, <laughs> the owners of the Belgravia pub are in the Black Book. Oh, indeed. Well, they're... Mr. Moran, the owner, is uh, very vocal about mobile phones and copes. He he doesn't like either of those things. <laughs> yeah, he was very... Uh, anyway, she used to go in there with Prince Andrew? or <laughs> <laughs> He was very cagey when we were filming there, keeping an eye on what we were doing. No, he's, um, he's a curious local character. I've lived in the area most of my life, and uh, um, I've had a few dealings, but a few of people connected with Miss Maxwell and her brothers. Um, but uh, the situation with that house, uh, obviously, you picked up on from what I'd written about. Uh, and since your your colleague contacted me, I've now found out that uh, you know they were trying to sell it at a much higher price last year. Um, and the price that it, the lawyer mentioned in her bail hearing seems to be ridiculously low. Um, an estate agent locally called Matthew Kay of Kay and Carey, he, he, he said that house, even in the state it's in, because it's plainly not been renovated, given how you identified the, the banister and the red paint and everything else, um, even in that state, it's worth at least £2 million. Pounds. Um, so the, their supposed sale price is, frankly, a little curious. Um, it looks like to me as if perhaps the family are moving around the assets. And, uh, you know, Mr. Ian Maxwell's appearance on Radio 4 this morning was very well-timed, with probably the help of Brian Basham. I don't know how much you know about him, but um, he was famous for the Dirty Tricks campaign with um, against Richard Branson. And he's representing the family now. Um, I've had a lot of correspondence with him. He's representing the family now? Yes, he's the spokesperson for the Maxwell family. He ah. ran the Get, Get Ghislaine Out of Jail campaign, which the Daily Telegraph have actually written about. Um, you know, you've got some very curious characters. You know, she moved, Miss Maxwell moved from Britain's most expensive council house, as uh, Headington Hill House was always referred to, her father's home to, you know, this place in Belgravia. It's 
it's certainly not as grand as as you've seen as you've seen yourself as some people describe it. But it's you know, tiny, it's, isn't it? It's, isn't it only a thousand square foot? It's worth a couple of million pounds. And it's only a thousand square foot. It's yeah, worth a couple of million pounds. Um, it's one of the smallest houses in that street, and it's definitely the worst the worst house in that street in terms of its condition. It's plainly not been renovated in a very long time. Um, obviously, she's spent her time elsewhere. Um, you know, she had her little house tucked away in <laughs> in in the, um, New Hampshire. Um, this is a lady who has also had a house in South Kensington, which I've reported on previously, a lady who lived opposite. They used her home to monitor the Maxwell House in 1994, the Metropolitan Police. And that was around the time when the, the victim number three, uh, who is an unknown person, which her brother so objected to on Radio 4 this morning, was supposedly being groomed in that house. The lady who I have had dealings with, who doesn't wish to be named, um, she let, allowed the police to use that house for a week and then nothing happened. Why? In 1994, they could have done something perhaps about this woman, but perhaps her proximity to a powerful man like Prince Andrew got her protection. Why? Uh, speculation, but, you know, it's, it's, yeah. it does seem a little odd that she was watched in the 1990s and nothing was done. Why are the house prices in that area so expensive? Um, mainly now because uh, prior to the coronavirus, a lot of Arabic people and Chinese people were buying homes. It used to be an area where people bought to live. It was a very much a family area. Um, and then obviously in the, in the 70s and 80s, American people, European people, they all moved there. Um, more recently... A lot of Arab, young Arabic people like to come to to that area of London because it's it's got all the shops they like. It's got it's got the hotel bars they like to go to, and they they have freedom when they come here. But obviously, for the last year, it's sort of gone a little bit backwards because uh, the coronavirus means those people can't come anymore. But uh, no, it's it's the prime area of central London. Most of it is owned by the Duke of Westminster and the Earl of Cadogan. Um, they've landed estates. Um, those properties have, have always been considered, you know, the best addresses in Britain. And like Miss Maxwell lived in the best addresses in New York, courtesy of her friend, Mr. Mr. Epstein, or whoever was really funding those houses, the, the Epstein house probably was never bought by him. It was gifted to him by Leslie Wexner, who... Um, if you follow a lady um, called Kirby Summers, she re regularly references the, the things that went on there. Um, and the sale of that house is pending at the moment as well. And goodness knows what will happen to it. But, you know, most of the people that talk about it say, bring in a rabbi, bring in a, a priest, get the place blessed and cleansed of these, these vile people. Um, and... Whoever buys Miss Maxwell's house, uh, I would suspect it was not a genuine, clear transaction. It, it was a transfer to somebody sympathetic. Um, I do know somebody who attempted to raise finance for that 
family in December, um, and nobody wanted to touch it. I'm not surprised. The shout yeah. out to Kirby Summers. She's arranged some of our interviews. So you're saying then that there was activity observed by the police back in the mid nineties. There was not surveillance. That, not at that house at her her other home, which was in Stanhope, Stanhope Mews, Mews in Kensington, South Kensington, near near South Kensington, Gloucester Road underground stations. Um, a lady who I know of, her home was borrowed by the police to monitor a house where they believed there was a brothel being run. And there were young ladies coming and going from that house. And that was in the period that Miss Maxwell owned that property. Wow. That's fascinating. That, that this is new to me. Um, so... I, can read you, I could read you what this lady said. Yes, um, please. She said, I was visited by officers from the Met Police in 1994 who asked to use a bedroom in my property and install a camera at the window to monitor the house diagonally opposite 69 Stanhope Muse East. I was not told at the time who the person concerned was, but I now realise it was Ghislaine Maxwell who was the owner of that house. I recall seeing very young girls coming and going from that building very often. The officers remained for a week, and then I heard no more about what happened next. All I knew was that a brothel was being operated from there and that the police wanted to close it down. They could have caught this evil woman then, but maybe her friendships with powerful people like Prince Andrew helped ensure her criminality was swept under the carpet. That's mind-blowing. So we're hearing that she was under observation in 1994, a property... Yeah. Other than the one that we filmed at, um, and they were aware like, of... Yeah, another situation that I've previously written about was a man who was involved with um, uh, Bernie Madoff, and um, his business was closed down in the early 1990s. And in America, the FBI did nothing about that then. They could have... And there was a, a journalist, I can't remember his name, but he he tried to expose the links with Bernie Madoff, but they said he's the uh, the chief of NASDAQ. You can't go after this man now. And this is exactly what happened with Miss Maxwell, I believe, in 1994. Good grief. So we had Ian Maxwell on today and the... Uh, Which I do discussion? believe was brought about by Brian Basham, who is, I've been told by journalists from the Daily Mail, he's not someone you upset. He is a very angry person. I've had some very strange messages from him myself in the past. He was, he's, if you look him up, he's, he's had some, he's, he's anti the monarchy, um, but he's very pro big business. Uh, he's, he's quite a contradictory character from all I know. I've never met the man. Um, I don't know what you know about him, but uh, uh, I think the interview this morning was very carefully timed as part of her attempt to get this this get Ghislaine out uh, campaign that he's been running. The Daily Telegraph, who are very, very supportive of, of the Maxwells, more than any other paper. Um, there is another, the, the Daily Mail don't tend to cover it because of a certain person who's their editor, who has been photographed with uh, Miss Maxwell. Um, it, it's interesting to see which parts of the media are interested and which are not the mirror is very crusading against her 
which is surprising. You know, her father used to own it, but uh, <laughs> obviously they, they they've moved on. But uh, um, it's it's people really like Kirby Summers who keep this this in the the media in the in the way that actually is making a difference rather than the mainstream media. Um, yeah, and, and Virginia and Maria and Annie Farmer as well. They're all over Twitter constantly. But that's the only way they can get their message out there. Um, but Miss Maxwell's complaints about being in prison, um, you know, her hair falling out, she doesn't like the food, uh, she wants more computers, she wants this, she wants that. It's It doesn't really resonate very well with anybody, I don't think. So on this discussion this morning with Ian Maxwell was the old, the photo may have not been real conversation. What are your thoughts on Prince Andrew's interpretation of that and Maxwell's interpretation of that? My thoughts on the photograph are that that photograph has now been out there for several years. Nobody has proven it to be false. I've spoken with many different people who are in, you know, mainstream newspapers. If that photograph were false, that photograph would have been discredited by now. And Mr. Max, Ian Maxwell this morning confirmed that photograph to be real as much as you did with your video. Um, he claimed about his chubby hands, you know, Prince Andrew. Um, it wasn't his hands. It wasn't his clothes. You know, he didn't recognize this room. Um, he's, he said also of the bathroom in the house, he couldn't have sex, sexual relations in that bathroom. It sounds a bit Bill Clinton-esque to me. <laughs> you know, it's a bit crazy, really. You've got a load of questions have come in from the viewers, so I'll start with Sapphire. Something has to give at some point. Are the prosecutors, judge, etc., concerned about Maxwell singing? I mean, don't they realise how loaded she is? Yes, she's a horrid person, but she's the keeper of a large Pandora's box of dark information. Well, she's definitely that, but she she is also a delusional person from what I know of her. Um I have had um, contact with people who know that family very well. Um, uh, there's a, a book which you probably should read. Um, I've got a copy of it here. But it's uh, it's a, by a lady called Eleanor Berry, who was um, Robert Maxwell's alleged lover friend. She's been mentioned in a number of different things. But um, these 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 people believe themselves to be a lot more powerful and untouchable than they are you know she thought she could hide out in a place called tucked away you know it shows her arrogance in my <laughs> no this, this lady is delusional um you know, i was actually i didn't know it at the time i was probably amongst one of the last people to see miss maxwell in the uk i didn't know she was i didn't i wasn't looking for her i was having dinner at a restaurant called bibendum in, in South Kensington, and there was a car rally called Cash and Rocket, which I've written about, and I actually have a photograph of the car Miss Maxwell was driving, um, which was an Alfa Romeo. She drove from London to Monaco, and it was the last photograph of her in Europe was in at that car rally. There were people like Paris Hilton there and Caroline Stanbury, and they were all coming in to this restaurant, and I was sat in the foyer having dinner with somebody and it, we didn't we weren't particularly looking out for anybody the cameras were looking out for Paris Hilton but um you know this lady is so arrogant she believes she can 
she can just go through this and it'll all go away and there won't be any problem. Um, you know, her brother's comments this morning about Prince Andrew saying she still believes he's a friend. Um, you know, Prince Andrew is equally delusional. I think he he needs to examine his moral compass and simply go and answer the questions of the, the FBI. So Kate Walshaw wants to know, is Piers Morgan in bed with Maxwell? Um, I think that's a little a little over-exaggerated, to be honest. <laughs> they were in a photograph together. If you go to a party, you get photographed in a room. You can't help who you're photographed with. Elon Musk, he was photobombed, he claimed, by her. Um, she definitely liked to be in photographs. You know, she liked to take photographs. She liked to secretly take photographs. She liked to cavort with young ladies and make them take their clothes off and take photographs. This was a woman who loved a photo. And just just as, as um, the book The Falls said of her father, when he bought the mirror, he wanted to be in every photograph. I think in the first week he was in 24 images in the paper. You know, this is, the, this is a family who loved the attention and she grew up loving attention and I think Piers Morgan probably met her a few times but that doesn't make him guilty of anything other than having met her a few times because Piers has hammered Prince Andrew on TV and said a lot about Maxwell as well he likes he he likes to hammer a lot of people and sometimes he gets it right and sometimes he doesn't but you know he he had all that that stuff with the share dealing. He had, um, you know, the fake pictures of the the, the soldiers, um, which got him fired from the paper. Um, he's got his particular war on Meghan, who, you know, hit him and this lady called Lizzie Cundy, they both believe they were ghosted. Um, well, they may have met him, a few, uh, met her a few times, but. It doesn't mean the best friends. Um, I think Piers Morgan's relationship with Ghislaine Maxwell was simply they met at parties. Next question is from Cherry. Was Jeffrey Epstein seen there at that property at the same time? I think Cherry's reference in the property that you mentioned the surveillance was done at. Um, I don't know anything of that, no. Okay, next question is from Ash. Why do you think Ghislaine didn't run away and hide in a remote island or a foreign country and change her identity to avoid being arrested? Actually, that's from Hessa. Well, um, I remember reading one story, which was, I think, in the mirror of all places. It said she'd run away on a submarine and she was hiding <laughs> in a submarine, which was a little far-fetched. Um, other people told me she was living in her mother's former residence in Belgravia, which is a... Um, the these Cundy Street flats of the name of the building. It's where the Duke of Westminster used to put all the people he felt sorry for. And uh, that was the one place she was supposedly hiding. Um, and then, of course, there was the photograph of her at the burger place. Uh, you know, she she was everywhere and nowhere. She was in Paris. She was in Israel. Um, I had I, I, an aristocrat I knew told me she... Uh, she was definitely in Israel, and she would never come back. And then you had Lady Victoria Harvey, you know, well, particularly crackpot woman, who uh, announced that she would never be found again. So I think poor, poor, Vic, poor, poor um, Lady Twitter really didn't put it right there. Um, but 
I think the reason she didn't disappear was she had such arrogance. This is a woman who has always been arrogant. Mm. She ran the she ran this Oceana. She ran she ran this charity um, uh, Terra Firma uh, Terra Mar, and when she was questioned by the by the FBI, she was asked where she was a citizen of, and one of her answers was, "I'm a citizen of Terra Mar." This woman is a she had got the delusions of her father, who changed his name many times. Who, you know, these are these are a, a family of megalomaniacs. She inherited her father's qualities because she was the favourite child. This ties into the next question then from Paulie Walnuts. Has anybody done any digging into Terramar UK? Who were her partners in that business? Um, I don't know particularly a lot about Terramar other than um, several highly connected people I, I know socially did support it long ago because they, they, they were involved in ocean charities themselves. Um, but I, do, I can say that Miss Maxwell was involved in something called Oceana, which was actually a charity which later, you wouldn't believe it, Carrie Simmons came to work for. So the Prime Minister's spouse... Um, I think she came a little later than Miss Maxwell ceased, ceased to be really involved. But, you know, th- 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 these people are very interconnected. That's why your question about Piers Morgan, you know, is, is fair. But I, I don't think Piers Morgan's involvement was as strong as perhaps someone like Carrie Simmons, because, you know, these people work together on a charity. I don't, I, I don't know if you've watched the video of, um, of Maxwell on um, TED, Yes, I've watched it several times. Again, you can see this woman's delusional ambitions of world grandeur, and it's exactly what her her own father had to say on you know these kind of subjects. She's pushing virtual oceanic real estate. We all own. We all own. We all own the world's commons. You know, we we all own it, and really, she doesn't want us all to own it. She wanted herself to own it. Hessa would like to know, what is Ghislaine's husband doing now? Is he still married to her? Um, he's plainly very much still married to her and, and helping transfer assets to try and get her bail. But her three attempts at bail have thus far failed. And I don't believe anyone would rightly allow her out because she is a flight risk. She remains a flight risk. So was there a ruling on the third bail attempt already? Um, I think the, the, the third time was a failure, but I think we, they're trying again. Yeah, okay. Because we had well, the, the last one was December, wasn't it, when it yeah. was shut down? And they're trying again. Do you think there are financial shenanigans going on between her and her husband, pretending it's her husband's money and it's perhaps her money? I think the interesting thing about the money, and it's purely a theory, um, you know, when her father's money, when her father fell off the boat and the money disappeared, and you know Jeffrey Epstein went from being a teacher to being a man who lived in an eighty-eight million pound house, eighty-eight million dollar house. Uh, you know, this money got transferred somewhere, and there was no money left for those children because their father had plundered the, the legitimate money. So, I believe she. She had a collection of money. I think she was more the controller 
and Jeffrey Epstein was more her puppet than the other way around, to be honest. Um, so, so in one book, with regard to the the current husband, he he is someone who she's using in a, as a funnel in the same way. In one book I read, I think it was the assassination of Robert Maxwell. They claimed that Robert had set up untouchable trust funds that would keep the kids good for the rest of their lives. Did that not pan out? Well, it did, definitely didn't work out for Ian Kevin Maxwell, who have been bankrupt on multiple occasions. Um, she went to America and found a different life. Um, one of her sisters, who I actually met, I didn't actually know that she was a Maxwell at the time I met her in California, married a very wealthy man whose family controlled the birth control pill and and, and had a, a tech company, which they sold for a huge amount of money. You know, that some of them have done very well and you can't blame the children for who their father is forever. But I think uh, the problem with Ghislaine is that her arrogance has gotten the better of her and she's always believed she is above everybody else. You know, her and her friend, Prince Andrew, her and her friend, this, that and the other. The photographs are always with, you know, pretty awful people. <laughs> um, she's She is somebody with an arrogance that knows no bounds, as, you know, to misquote <laughs> Barbara Emil. Um, you know, and that's ultimately what brings your downfall. So Kevin wants to know who's managing... Ghislaine's money while she's in jail? Um, I would believe the majority of the money is managed by her two brothers rather than the husband. From what right. I have gathered from people who they have approached. What's the story about the illusionist that married into the family and ended up dead? Which was... Uh, I. You'll have to educate me about that. Okay, let's skip that one then. Let's go over to the next question because we've, we've only got a few minutes left. Do you think the Queen is happy to help sabotage Harry and Meghan to get the public off the subject of her favourite son, Prince Andrew? Um, I think the Queen, the Queen has been put in a very difficult position at a time when her husband is very ill. Um, prior to that... Yes, of course, she wants to protect all her children. You know, wouldn't wouldn't anybody? Um, you know, the blood is thicker than water. But but um, Prince Prince Harry's behaviour and Meghan Markle's behaviour is their own. And you know, I think the decent thing the palace needs to do now is to make the, Prince Andrew go and answer the questions of the FBI. Absolutely. Do you have any theory as to the location of the honey trap tapes? Mm, I think you know as much as I do. <laughs> Can't, if, I, if we knew where those things were, well, we'd all go and find them, wouldn't we? <laughs> okay, so let me have a look. Uh, if there's any more questions, we've just got a couple of minutes left. How do you think the Maxwell trial will go? Do you think she has the influence and clout to get released? I may well actually be attending it myself. Oh, wow. Uh, I have been approached about that. Um, and I think she will not say as much as you expect about certain people. Um, she certainly will probably keep quieter about Donald Trump, who possibly 
met his wife through her and Epstein. I think I think that that would be an even more shocking revelation if it came out during it. But there are many suggestions that Melania could have been trafficked on the Epstein plane. Good grief. I'm just going to give a disclaimer there that I am um, apolitical because I know the viewers are going to go nuts over that uh, claim. I, I, I am not a supporter of Biden or Trump either. So <laughs> I, I think, you know, we have questions about all these people. I, I think, <laughs> but um, no, she could reveal many things at this trial or she could just keep completely quiet. Um, I believe the woman is so arrogant and delusional that she probably just thinks she's going to get away with it as her brothers keep claiming. Well, you do cling on to the pipe dreams of getting released, but the US justice system has a way of crushing that out of you. So unless she gets some play from the bride, the Biden presidency because of the association with the Clintons, I think the Clintons have got a lot more to lose than yeah. Trump as information comes out. Uh, maybe she'll get some play. Maybe intelligence will come in and say, look, Maxwell, you've got to do so many years to keep the public happy. Obviously, we can't put these names out there in the interest of national security. Here's your plea bargain. Be a good person. Get on with your time. You don't have an accident or end up dead in the federal prison system, do you? And I think that she'll just abide the, by the, that. The, I think the, the justice system would have more of a problem if she were to die because of the fact Jeffrey Epstein was allowed to die or disappear or whatever all these theories say, um, because it would create only more conspiracy theories and that's not helpful to anybody. Well, don't you think that the people who had Epstein suicided don't care? It's like they know we know, and to do another one wouldn't change anything, really? I think it would be more problematic because the proximity to the British royal family, um, you know, the, there's a new era in America with a new president. It's not convenient. It's not the right time for that to happen. It seems there's like an equation. The costs of what they could say are more than the damage caused by us knowing. I think you're quite right. <laughs> yes. I think it's, <laughs> It's, 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 a, it's an almighty mess and everybody wants it to end in in the higher circles. But obviously, conspiracy theorists will continue to claim that Jeffrey Epstein is still alive and driving a, a pickup truck in Mex New Mexico. And, you know, they, they will claim that Ghislaine is living on a submarine and she's not really in jail. And there are plenty of people who've got these theories who write to me daily. I get a lot of people telling me she's not even in prison. Um, yeah, I, I get do a lot. believe she is in prison. And I believe that Brian Basham is trying to spin her way out of prison. Um, and her brother's, you know, freedom on Radio 4 this morning quite was surprising because I don't know why Radio 4 were so keen to pick up on it when, you know, no one else has. Well, they had Gloria Allred on, given the other mm -hmm. side. And I think with the public scrutiny of this case, she's going to be hard put to get out with time served. She's yeah. going to have to do something 
to satisfy the public. Otherwise, it's just going to look like the whole system is completely corrupt, which it is, but they don't want to show that. Now, speaking of the corruption then from the get-go, so Acosta, Dershowitz, both involved in the sweetheart deal. And Mr. Dershowitz is somebody who went from being a much-loved character based on his role in a film about somebody who I didn't know, Klaus von Bullo, um, you know, he was the crusading lawyer who, you know, took on this case because he, he, even though his main cases were, you know, small people injustices, he took on Klaus's case. Um, and he's become a monster from this. He's made a complete fool of himself. Um, it's bizarre how people have attached themselves to this woman who, who will just sink them. And do you think that's because his success, wealth, power yeah, went, he, to, went he, to his head? He's got dark side, hasn't he, really? He's got that same arrogance now that Maxwell's got. I only sleep with my same wife. How the, dare you question me? Same as, the, um, uh, I forget, what's his name? I've got Donald Trump, uh, Giuliani, Mayor Giuliani. You know, he, he went from being, you know, a, a mayor of New York who was loved and, you know, someone who, had, who stopped crime to being somebody who's, just completely crackers now. And I'm afraid Dershowitz did the same thing. These people should study history and see how yeah. the masses can tear people down from time yeah. to time, especially with the help of a federal prosecutor. Precisely. Well, you, you don't want to get in their way. It's a little tougher than the British justice. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Matthew. <laughs> um, you. Is there anything you'd you like to say in conclusion to the people watching? Um, well, I think watch this space. I don't think... Any of us know what will happen next. It's the Ghislaine Maxwell show. It's you don't you, you don't know what she might do tomorrow. She might complain about her computer, or she she might she might escape jail. You know, I somehow think that unlikely. But, but this woman is someone who is capable, like her father, of creating smoke and mirrors. It certainly keeps it in the news. With anything can happen. And it's, you know, did you see at the court, they said that out of all of the um, cases like Weinstein, all the abuse cases, Maxwell's case has got more news stories than all of them combined. Maxwell Precisely. And, you know, there she was in the photograph with Harvey. And Harvey Weinstein, I did have dealings with long, long ago, and he was a very, very unpleasant man. But I think Miss Maxwell is a far worse specimen, a very so dangerous woman. So we had John Sweeney in the studio here in Guildford. Uh, would you be perhaps be willing to do a studio podcast, maybe after the trial or something? Tell us, you know, in more detail about um, your well, Maxwell knowledge. Pleasure, yes, I think uh, I've, I've enjoyed this very much, and I hope your 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 viewers enjoyed hearing a bit about her property transactions. Um, yes, it would pleasure. Yeah, they're all saying great interview. Would love to see him come back. They're all praising you to the high heavens in the chat. So, well, are, you, are you based in the south then, in London? I live. I live in the same area of London as where she lived. Where she lived when she was here, but she hasn't lived here in a very long time. But uh, yes, it's that's my home, and uh, that's how I know some of the people involved in this whole sorry saga. Great, not far from um, the studio here in Guildford, then. Yeah. Um, so all right, we will keep right. in touch. Thank you very okay, well, much. Thank you very much. And, and if people want to, if people want to reach out to you, do you take messages? Or are you on socials? Uh, we have um, we have a Twitter account at Steeple Times. Um, 
they can leave comments on our articles. They can write to me directly on, on via you know the the links on our website. Have you sent that Twitter handle over to Ash? I did, yes. Great. So that should already be in the description box below this video. So please go out and check out Matthew's stuff. Okay. Well, thank you very much. All right. Have a good evening, Matthew. Bye bye. Bye bye. What a nice fellow. That was a delight. Delight to talk to. Oh, let me change my leg position. Oh, there's obviously not going to be a link below this video because we are still on Patreon, but it'll end up on YouTube at some point. I think that was not in violation of the policy. Oh, there we go. Ash has put it in. The comments. Multiple links for Matthew. So this is the Q&A section now. OG Shadow is a no-show. We suspected this might happen. Please put questions in the chat for me or in the ask a question thing. I'm going to delete these previous questions so that um, I can keep an eye on this thing. Let me just do that. Delete, delete, delete. 11 questions came in. Delete. What's, what's, didn't Matthew have a rather lovely, lovely jumper? He did. If he lives near Maxwell, he's got a rather lovely everything, probably. Delete. <laughs> Prosecutors, delete, delete. All right, so the question is, can we get Jock over, Sean, helping with his campaign? Yeah, we will. We'll follow up with that. We will try and help Jock somehow. We'll do a much longer thing with him as well. Let's delete that one. How about Louis Thoreau as a podcast guest? I would love to have Louis throw on as a podcast guest. We were the joint judges one year for the Kersler Trust Arts Contest for Prisoners in the UK. And he's obviously a very busy guy, but we will reach out to him. Ron, Ron, I was going to say Ron Swanson. John Ronson. Ron Swanson, John Ronson. John Ronson. <laughs> I've done a few things with John Ronson. I've been inspired by his work, going back to Bohemian Grove, read some of his books. Hilarious, seeing him running around the bushes with Alex Jones. And out of all the people who ever interviewed me, his transition the smoothest. It was like I showed up, I was having a conversation with him and his staff, and I didn't even know the interview had begun. That's how at ease he put me. Great guy, John Ronson. Richard D. Hall would come on the channel. We have asked Richard D. Hall multiple times. And he said he said everything he needs to say about McCann, etc. So our next guest coming up is Graham Smith at the Republic. And we're going to be going right back to the Royals and the interview.
Richard D. Sean, why do you think Epstein collected dirt on everyone if he wasn't going to use it to protect himself or use it as a dead man switch in case he suicided? I believe Epstein was collecting dirt on people not for himself specifically, but he was doing it for intelligence agencies, probably Israel, primarily Israel, I would imagine. And... He, he probably never thought that it would get to this because he was so protected from the sweetheart deal. If he wasn't going to use it as to protect himself, I'll use it as a dead man switch in case he suicided. If he had that foresight, I do believe he would have activated that or threatened to activate it to save his own life but apparently he did not have that foresight or it was compromised. If he had the capability to put that together, surely the intelligence agencies would have the capability to outsmart him, snatch up his dead man's switch and take him out. I mean, how safe is a dead man's switch? How complex does it have to be? And if you're using modern technology, can't the intelligence agencies just track all that stuff anyway and perhaps contact any other parties involved and let them know there will be fatal consequences if this is so much as mentioned? Okay, looking at questions. This is from Kevin. Just wanted to say I was late as I was stuck in the car finishing listening to the Royal Family Norman Baker interview. Everyone, make sure you listen to it. Thank you, Kevin. So just two questions in the question box. I'm still reading the chat. Let's have a look. Ghislaine has, was his kill switched all right. Does Ghislaine have her own kill switch or is she just in the same old position as Jeffrey? According to John Mark Duggan, the feds, the CIA, MI5, MI6 have all of the information, the videos, the photos, everything. So they've got it. They wouldn't release it because they are the enforcement arm of these powerful people. Could Ghislaine circumvent that? Could she threaten to circumvent that? Does she have that skill and that ability from the jail to, to do it? It's extremely fascinating. I would be amazed if we just woke up one morning and just like we were all, you know, buzzing when Epstein was suicided, we wake up one morning and there's a video online of, for example, Prince Andrew in a compromising situation, Bill Clinton in a compromising situation. I think that would be, it would really cause this whole story and interest to go to a new level. But realistically, people with that much power, is it going to happen? I doubt it. <laughs> okay. Here's a question from MDA. Kind of personal reads funny, but is it genuine? Do you drink fancy water from a glass bottle as a tool for your sobriety? Uh, 
as it seems fancy and fills the party element that's now missing. <laughs> well, people often mistake this for Russian vodka. And because I only drink water and I don't drink sugar products or crappy kind of things, my taste buds have got really sensitive. And when did I get released from prison? December 2007. I was hitting up the alcohol for a year, probably not drinking um, good quality water for quite a few years after that. But when I went down to just drinking only water, I could start to taste the differences in water. And I was always plagued with mouth ulcers my entire life. And then I read online someone who would come from a non-Western country to a Western country and had drank the tap water and had outbreaks of mouth ulcers. And then when they went home, the out mouth ulcers went away. And when I switched from tap water to glass bottled water, my mouth ulcers stopped. I don't know whether I programmed them to never come back because of that story. I was so inspired by it. But literally when I was a kid, my mum would take me to the doctors. I had just mouth ulcers everywhere. And that carried forward into adulthood. And the bottled glass water, the timing of it, it all stopped after that. So I've stayed with it. Nothing too fancy schmancy. It was to do with my mouth ulcers. And it's not that expensive either if you bulk buy it off Amazon. And I've moved over to this one now. And over time, you start to think that some of these bottled waters taste better than the others. Some are a bit more minerally, some are less minerally. So, um, so that's why I drink this water. All right, next question from Stephen. Is there any way to get any of the Lizard Squad, if this is this live on the show? So he's referring there to Isaac Cappy. And Ash is the guest booker, so... We're going to have to ask Ash to research the Lizard Squad and see if they are available. Best true crime book you've read this year, Sean? I have my own publishing company now. Let me see if I've got a copy of it down here. And this book that I've just published is absolutely fascinating. It's called The Murder of Sophie. And it's by an Irish author, Michael Sheridan. It's a really long one. And a woman is found dead, a property in Ireland. She is the wife of a movie mogul, moves in very high circles. This is Sophie. And the lead journalist on the case who everyone's going to for information becomes the murder suspect. Just going to change my batteries. I will keep talking. Don't worry about the visual. I'm frozen right now on the camera. So 
the lead suspect becomes someone the French authorities want to speak to and the Irish authorities. And somehow, even though, let's just say the outcome in France is bad for this person because of extradition laws and double jeopardy and all this other stuff, the killer, alleged killer, has quite a fortunate thing happen for him. I'm just going to see if I've got this one on the floor so I can show you the cover for it. Yeah, I've got a copy, I had a copy lying around. Oh, here it is. Here it is. This is the suspect, the alleged killer. So we just published this. There is going to be a Netflix and Sky series. It's going to be huge coming out. But if you want to get in there before the masses, then it's available worldwide on Amazon. And we got a really good Irish narrator, if you're, if you're into the audiobooks, approved by Amy in Alabama for Americans to understand and enjoy. The Murder of Sophie. Uh, just the twists and turns are absolutely gripping. And Michael spent 20 years, I think, on this case. It's his magnum opus. All right, let's see. What's the next one? I can't retype the whole question. I was talking about Charles die Camilla. Now Camilla is a royal. And the irony of all that no one remembers but seems hypocritical that the palace would embrace that and now the stuff with Meg and Harry. So this is Sapphire putting a, a comment in there, really. And if you look at the popularity rating of the royals, I think Camilla's 30-something percent. The Queen's like 60-70%. Andrew, of course, at the bottom. But, I mean, what hope? I just, what hope does the crown have if Charles and Camilla are in power? I mean, what a basket case Charles is. Everything from his schooling and his relationship with Camilla and how they used Diana, absolutely abhorrent. He's, this guy has got to have massive demons. And whenever we look at Camilla, we just think of Diana Killer. So if she's like the leading lady in, in the crown, the queen, to Charles, Diana Killer. It doesn't bode well for the future of the monarchy. If, if they wanted to keep the monarchy popular, they should skip Charles. But there are laws against that, apparently. So, <laughs> stat phase approved by Amy. So, Chris, is there two parts of the book? You can get the whole book, The Murder of Sophie, on Amazon. Or if you just want to check out part one first, it has been split into two parts as well because it is so long. <laughs> it's so long. It is. Two books in length, I think, yeah, 500 pages. So I think the audio's almost 20 hours. Let's have a look. What's next? Do you follow any true crime channels on YouTube like that chapter or others? I watch a lot of 
podcasts of people who've been into prison. And that's how we get a lot of our true crime podcast guests. So there are numerous channels out there that have got people who, who with um, prison stories on them. So I do, I do generally watch those. Ash sends me a lot. Should we get this guy on? Should we get that uh, person on? And we watch them to see if they're good storytellers or not. Uh, I used to watch David Icke's channel quite a bit. So that got deplatformed. And let me think of any other good ones that um, I, I listen to music, listen to various dance music stuff. And YouTube always seems to know when I'm about to go bed because when I turn my phone on, it's suggesting binormal beats, soothing relaxation music, meditation music for sleep. All right. If Epstein was used by Israeli intelligence, to what extent do you think all intelligence agencies still use the same tactics? So I asked that to Ari Ben Menash, former Israeli military intelligence, and he said that the Israelis had a real penchant for the honey trap stuff. But I imagine it's an arms race between them all, and whoever's the most devious wins at the end of that. Sapphire, what was the name of the author or book that Matthew suggested to read about Maxwell when he answered my question? I can't remember off the top of my head, Sapphire. I would suggest tweeting him that. I'm sure he would be glad to accommodate that. All right, we're almost at half past. I'm going to see if Graham is in the room. Hold on a sec. Oh, there was one then. Let me just see this question. What is the deal with Brian Harvey these days? I know he's calling you out recently. I had a conversation with Ash. So Brian Harvey got upset because I had guests on like John Wedger and Ian Puddick, and he believes they conspired to cause him some kind of harm, which I don't fully understand. The dots don't seem to be connecting. So Brian contacted us recently, say he wanted to exercise his right of reply. If you say, you know, if you have guests on talking about someone, there is a, a right of reply option for them. And I said, Brian Harvey, you are perfectly welcome to come on and exercise your right of reply. We film out of the Guildford studio. Would you come down here? Blah, blah, blah. But then he, he got a bit crazy. He put out a video saying that Ash wasn't real and just started making all kinds of weird demands. So... I'm just worried that Brian is, you know, he says a lot of really great things. I enjoy his, enjoyed his interview with Chris Joe Hart, who we've had on. I was fascinated by his story. I would love to get him on to say his life story, but sometimes he does go on big rants and says some bizarre things. And I um, just started to get a bit concerned when he, he said it this this interview is going to be at my place. You got to come to my house. I can't bring anyone with me, my cameraman or anything. And, you know, maybe I will show up at his house and have a chat with him because I am concerned about his mental health. And he seems like a really nice guy, but he's, he's obviously feels very passionate about John Wedger and, 
these other characters, but I don't fully understand what they've done to cause him this harm, which is, which is, I wish it was set out clearer. All right, so we're at 25 past. Let's see. Graham Smith. Let me just click on this. See if Graham Smith is anywhere to be seen. Not yet. He's probably getting close. And if you guys are not familiar with Brian Harvey, he was mega famous for a period of time. He was part of the band E17. I was in America when they had their rise to fame, so I wasn't aware of them. I don't think they crossed over to America. And there's like a Christmas song that comes out all the time that um, is still played to this day. But it doesn't look like he's getting any royalties of it because I think he's living in a little place in London. It's a shame these guys, you know, these creators are able to get a, a video or a song or a book worldwide while they're young people because they've got talent. But then the people behind the scenes just come in and take all the bloody money. Let's have a look at the chat then while we're waiting for Graham. Chris has said, Sean Dunblane uncovered. I strongly recommend that about the link between the massacre and the Scottish Central Police. Yeah, you know, we're all, we're trying to get all over these cases, King Cora included. And it's just a case of us finding guests that not only have expert information, but are able to tell it properly on camera. Some people just don't know how to tell a story. Let's see. I met Diana. This is from MDA. She was impressive and genuine. Well, it just moved then. Let's see. Where did that go? Hmm. Brian Harvey's not a well person. I don't think it would be a good idea to have him on. That's from Kate. Um, Chris E, you can't deny his impersonation of David Icke is perfect. Yeah, I love Brian's impersonations. Kate, Ash, did you inform Sean that I found a photo of him from his raving days and that I had the matching top to his baggy bottoms? Not in my personal collection. The photo is online. I was semi-stalking Sean. Very important question. <laughs> I've seen some of the earlier photos of Brian. Um, can't remember if it was from his raving days or what. Take your own <laughs> bottle of water. Believe me. With all the threats coming in, everywhere I go, I take my own bottle of water these days. Chris, Brian doesn't help himself going on troll channels or just using him. Yeah, I agree exactly. And those troll channels just take little bits of what people say and just weave them together to make the crazy narratives. Ash isn't real. Is he a bot? <laughs> oh, here we go. Matthew is in the chat and he said the book is called My Unique Relationship with Robert Maxwell, The Truth at Last by Eleanor Berry. I do believe Sweeney referenced Eleanor Berry. And the may I may have even seen some videos with Eleanor Berry on YouTube talking about the corporal punishment that was dished out to Ghislaine that contributed to her BDSM mindset. 
MDMA, um, MDMA, MDA, um, boats. Yeah, we know all about the canal boats and the pedophiles because John Wedger schooled us on that. So if you're a pedophile, you have to register your address within so many days. But if you're on a canal boat in London, there's so many canal districts, the clock resets when you move to a new canal district. Please see John Wedger part one on the True Crime Podcast. Uh, absolutely mind-blowing story, his own personal story, really moving. He sacrificed a lot. And he sent us some great guests, and we've got more coming up. I've just watched one who was trafficked from Africa. We're talking voodoo, sex sexual uh demons and this lady is a really good speaker i think people are going to be fascinated by it we've not done anything on african voodoo yet update on wilfred wong i don't have an update since he wrote me the letter the trial's coming up i believe i think one of his co-defendants pled guilty and the other co-defendant died but there's still still a you know a few more co-defendants let me see what's going on. Da, 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 da. All right, so just going to go back into the box now. I see if Graham, we've any progress with Graham yet. Da, 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 da. Yes, I see him. Going to bring him in. Right on time. Hope some of you guys um, sent Corey some love because he was. You could see, man, it's it's took it out of him. Corey Feldman, the interview we did, you could see his whole campaigning has really wore him out, and he's on the verge of just packing it in. But the bravery, you know, to bring out those big names like Charlie Sheen, going after Marilyn Manson. He really isn't scared to name names when he has the conviction and feels that they've done something. Okay, so this should start to bring Graham in at any moment. What were your thoughts then, Patreon community, on the Corey Fellman interview that just went up? All right, here we go with Graham Smith. How is it Hi. going, Graham? Yeah, good, thanks. How are you? Yeah, great. We have been communicating for a while. We were going to do something. Then the pandemic hit. Yeah. yeah that's so, re so really appreciate you doing this this evening at such short notice. <clears throat> Would you like to tell the viewers then who you are, what you're about, what you do, how, you know, your interest in the Royals? Yeah, so Graham Smith, I'm the CEO of Republic, which you can find at republic.org.uk, but... Uh, we are a campaign which does what it says on the tin. We try and get rid of the monarchy and we want Britain to be a democratic parliamentary republic. And that's what I do for a living. It's what I've been doing for quite a long time. And I've been very busy talking about the royals uh, over the last few days for obvious reasons. So, um, you know, we've, uh, we've got an interesting decade ahead, I think, because there is uh, suddenly a lot of interest in the royals. So it's not quite the same as the interest we had around the wedding and the jubilee. There's a lot of hostility around them, and you know there is a 
a significant amount of damage I think has been done, um, which might explain why people like Piers Morgan are slightly losing the, <laughs> the call over the whole thing because they, they don't like it when the, things like the monarchy get challenged so much. Yeah, so we're going to put your links in the chat and the description box when this goes up on YouTube. And before we get to the Oprah interview and Prince Andrew then, why on earth would you be part of an organisation that wants to abolish the monarchy? Well, why wouldn't you? I mean, the uh, the monarchy is uh, a pretty atrocious institution. Well, I was just thinking about this um, earlier about, you know, if Piers Morgan invited me on for his next show, whatever that might be, and asked me the same question. And I think that because... You know, Piers Morgan is someone who either looks down on people or looks up to people, and I'm someone who likes to look at everybody, look everyone in the eye and treat them as equals. And I think that's the fundamental point of principle, that we should all be equals in our society. And that doesn't mean we're all the same. And, you know, I get slightly tired of people saying, oh, well, we're not all the same. Some people are more talented, some people are richer. Fine, whatever. But the point is, that's the point of equality, political equality, is that no matter what else there is about you, politically, we should be equal. We should be citizens with exactly the same rights, no matter who we are, no matter what our skills, intelligence, you know, the family we were born to, born into, or whatever. Um, so, on a basic point of principle, the monarchy just doesn't sit with that at all. In fact, it stands against it. It says, "No, we're going to resist that idea." You know, we're, we're constantly being forced to compromise our um, our democratic principles in order to make room for the monarchy, for the lords, for the established church, and all the rest of it. So, point of principle is the is a good place to start and really should be, you know, the end of it. Everything else is detail, really. I mean, if we, we should be agreeing on that and saying, yes, okay, you know, on your way out. But when you look at the monarchy and the constitution, it's even worse than that because the monarchy itself is, is not going too far to say it's corrupt because what is corruption if it's not the abuse of public office for private gain? You know, and that is the modus operandi of the, of the royals. That's what they do. And they, they justify it and they think it's all okay. They, they, you know, no one really tells them it's, it's not okay. But they routinely spend our money, our money, which could be spent on nurses or teachers or whatever, uh, on themselves. Uh, it costs us about £345 million a year. They demand absolute secrecy. There are historians, not Republicans necessarily, historians who have said that it is more secretive than... MI5 uh, or the CIA. Now, you can understand why MI5 and CIA might want to be a bit secretive, but why, why do the royals have to be? And the reason why is because if we know what they're doing behind closed doors, we wouldn't want, to, want them to be there anymore. Um, and they use that secrecy to then lobby the government to interfere to uh, protect their own interests, as we saw recently with stories about the Queen betting laws, as we see with um, lobbying to... You know, avoid having to pay tax to give themselves all sorts of legal uh, privileges, and they also lobby for their own agendas, as we see with Prince Charles, who's constantly pushing ministers to agree to uh, policy changes uh, that he favours. So you know, it's a pretty dodgy institution uh, as well. And the final third point, really, if that's not enough, is. It is a central part of our constitution, and the British constitution is dreadful. It is a constitution which centralises power in Downing Street. You know, the, the crown is a big part of that problem because the crown technically has huge amounts of power, and it is all exercised by the government. Um, it, it makes the government very powerful in the face of parliament. Uh, that hasn't always been obvious over the last few years because there have been minority governments, but normally, as we have now again, a majority government 
if they want Parliament to do something, Parliament will do it. You know, there might be a lot of hot air arguing, but the end result will always come back around to the Prime Minister getting what he wants. Um, and Parliament is all-powerful. It is sovereign. It might sound like it's contradicting what I just said, but the all-powerful Parliament is in the hands of the government, which makes it an all-powerful government. Um, so between elections, we really don't get much uh, looking. And all that comes back down to the fact that we have made this slightly grudging, piecemeal, trudging sort of uh, evolutionary journey from monarchy where the king is ruling us to this kind of weird uh, constitutional monarchy setup, where the politicians have essentially said, well, fine, you can you can keep your palaces and we'll give you loads of money as long as you keep making sure that uh, all that power comes to us. Um, and if we keep each other happy, then the people won't get that power <laughs> and uh, and we can carry on as before. So, um, yeah, principle, palace, politics, take your pick. But um, there's no good reason for keeping the monarchy. Um, been doing this a long time, still haven't heard one, so, yeah. <laughs> so you must have been absolutely inundated then in recent days with this media hysteria. What are you getting asked about the most? And what do you think the interview did the most in terms of damage to the royal family? What parts of it damaged them the most? The, um, I mean, I, I said pretty early on, I, I woke up on, so I was following all, all the uh, Twitter and, and looking at what all the royal correspondents and so-called experts were talking about over the weeks. You know, learns little bits, snippets that have been released by the Oprah Winfrey show. And, you know, there was one journalist calling it the two-hour whinge fest. I woke up on like five o'clock on Monday morning and saw the headline about um, racism and, you know, the colour of Meghan's baby. And I thought that was not what I was expecting. That is far worse than they were expecting. And I don't think that journalist... I did actually ask him. I said, what, are you still standing by this whinge fest thing? And he, he <laughs> rather pompously said, well, uh, I'll, I'll wait for the British people to see it this evening and then give my view on uh, in the paper tomorrow. And I thought, well, you didn't do that yesterday. You know, you were quite happy to dismiss it before you'd seen it. And I think there was a general sense of shock amongst royalists and royal correspondents and reporters and all the rest of it, that this is a far more serious than than they had imagined. Um, and and this is sort of just gives a clue to how damaging this is. And I, I said fairly early on, on on Twitter on Monday that, you know, this is the worst crisis they have been in since 1936 in the application. And so a lot of people say, well, hang on a bit, what about Prince Andrew? But that's the worst scandal. This is a worst crisis because they circled the wagons pretty quick around Andrew and said, look, you know, we will, we, okay, we'll stop him from doing royal duties, which is no great hardship on his part. Um, and uh, we'll sort of, you know, play the game, whatever, but we're not going to allow anybody anywhere near him. He's not going to be interviewed by the police. Um, he's not going to go to America and, uh, you know, just stop talking about it because we're not going to uh, do anything at all. Um, and and so they kind of got away with it to some extent, although that story hasn't gone away. Um, this is very different. I mean, there's two senior royals walking away together, turning around and, you know, blasting with both barrels straight at the heart of the royals, and that story is not going to go away. You know, this is, this is devastating for them, really, because <clears throat> in the next few years, the Queen will die, uh, and you will be left with a monarchy consisting of King Charles, Prince William... And that's it. And the other, the other one will still be in America with his wife, uh, complaining about these awful 
people that uh, that were racist and you know negligent in terms of her uh, Megan's mental health, and everyone is going to be thinking, well, which one was it? Was it Charles or was it William? <laughs> it's going to be one of them, you know. Um, so uh, yeah, it's it, it has fundamentally changed the way people perceive the world, not just here but overseas as well. And I think that is given that it's right at the end of the Queen's reign, that is going to be pretty devastating for them. So just to be the devil's advocate then, if you were on the TV breakfast show with Piers Morgan, and these are his words, not mine, and he said, look, I could have predicted this script. I'm going to play the race card. I'm going to play the mental health card. Of course, if two people are having a kid and one is mixed race, it's going to come up in any family as to the colour of the skin. What would you respond to him if he made those remarks? Well, I think that the when and this is essentially comes back to why Piers Morgan was asked to to leave. When people publicly talk about their mental health in that way, you cannot simply turn around and say, "I don't, I don't believe you." You know. The only time you can do that is if you have absolutely irrefutable proof, because not only is it harmful to uh, Meghan Markle, but it, there are thousands of people, if not millions, around certainly in the country, around the world, who are suffering from mental health issues, who are suffering from depression, who may be suicidal, or who are finding it really difficult to reach out to people and find help. And to see someone who has done that, who is privileged in a position of considerable wealth and power who has reached out for help and then being dismissed and mocked by a national figure like Piers Morgan, that is extremely dangerous. And I think that is essentially what ended his time at GMB. Um, you just can't do that. You know, you have to take it at face value. And I do. And I, I you know, I believe uh, that Meghan Markle was having a tough time. I think, to be perfectly honest, if I'm going to be critical of Meghan Markle, you know, she doesn't have the greatest amount of self-awareness in the sense that some of her complaints about how exhausting it is to go on tour around Africa, for example, and how tough things are. When, you know, she started making some of these complaints while standing in one of the poorest countries in the world. Um, but none of that means, none of her privilege and wealth means that she can't be suicidal. You know, anybody can get to that state. And we've seen it with you know, certain um, uh, celebrities who have actually tragically killed themselves. I mean, you know, anybody can get to that point. And on the race, I mean, I, I just don't, why would they ring it up? I mean, I, I think that it was just a casual chat. You know, from what I, I don't know whether you actually watched all of it, I watched uh, most of it. And um, when this came up, Megan was quite clear that conversation about the, the colour of Archie's skin uh, before he was born was with Harry and the Royal. And Harry then went and relayed that to Megan. And I, it just seemed very clear that they were pretty upset about it. Um, you know, it wasn't just a casual or light-hearted remark. It was a conversation about whether or not... Um, well, it's certainly a conversation, I think, that gave the impression that this particular royal was concerned about how that might look. And it fed into this idea that, you know, they were also saying, look, you know, when uh, Archie is older and Charles is king, uh, don't think for a minute that he's going to be a, a prince. You know, we're not going to treat him like the rest of you. Um, or the rest of us, you know, we're going to, you can all go and do your own thing. Um, so I think that you can only believe what's being said and whether you have sympathy for them generally or not, I think at a basic human level, you can't 
help but have sympathy for, for them on those two questions. So there's been mass speculation about the culprit of the racial remarks and Prince Philip has been targeted perhaps based upon there was a quote whereby he was going to come back as a virus or something and depopulate the world and also the Germanic relationship going back to the Nazis do you think that he is likely to have said something like that is it in his character or is it just wild speculation Oprah Winfrey said since the interview that Prince Harry told her that it wasn't the Queen or Philip, and I, I think that's probably right. I mean, aside from anything else, Philip is pretty frail and has been for a while now. I think it's unlikely he would have um, uh, had a conversation like that. I think that, um, you know, and, and the fact that he's ruled those two out <laughs> kind of only rules a couple of other people in. It's a comment made by someone much lower down the food chain within the royal family uh, it's unlikely it would have been commented on because they're not someone who has any particular... Um, that's not a particularly relevant or powerful conversation that they're going to have or worry about. But So it really narrows it down to two or three people. Um, and anyone can speculate. Comments uh, that people are already speculating and will be. And this is the problem, is that the two people that people will speculate most about are Charles and William. Um so is anybody get anybody's guess which of them it was, and uh, or whether it was one of those two or someone else? Um, but I, a lot of people have been saying, look, well, a lot of royalists are like, you know, how can you say that the royals are racist? How dare you, you know, people? Some of them, without any sense of irony, were saying, how can they be racist? But they were celebrating Commonwealth Day yesterday, which is a lot of people said, well, you know. <laughs> Yeah. Firstly, that sounds a bit like you know my best friend is black. But secondly, it sounds uh, it's kind of well, how can we be racist? We were just yesterday celebrating the fact that Britain used to have an empire, and it's not really the argument they think it is. But I'm aware that a lot of accusations of racism have come out, and I thought, well, I'll do a quick Twitter feed uh, thread of you know various um, racist remarks. If you take any member of the royal family, you Google their name and title with the word racist or racism, you're going to find a story somewhere. And, you know, Princess Michael of Kent, uh, who most people aren't aware of, but she, she was attacked uh, a few years ago for in a New York restaurant uh, being racist towards um, a group of black customers who were quite well-connected uh, and wealthy New Yorkers who were fairly quick to tell the, <laughs> the New York press. Um you know, Prince Andrew, not that long ago, was accused by the former Home Secretary, uh, Jackie Smith, of being racist towards and about acts whilst on a visit to the Middle East. Um, Prince Harry um, famously was uh, roundly castigated for uh, racist comments about Asian um, uh, soldiers in the British Army whilst he was serving in the uh, Middle East. Um Prince Charles, uh, one of his staff about 20 years ago, resigned um, and took him to a tribunal, I think. He certainly resigned from his staff. Uh, she was black. She was being racially abused in pretty offensive terms by very senior staff. Well, that was the accusation. And um, the claim was simply that uh, Charles wasn't interested. He liked the member of staff at the top who was doing the abusing and... Uh, She was, you know, um, the Queen Mother. But I don't know, a lot of people might not remember the Queen Mother anymore, but, um, you know, this is the Queen's mother, whose title was Queen Mother, and 
you know, she was renowned for making racist comments. You know, it was a routine, you know. It was, um, and there, again, there are lots of stories about that. Uh, if you Google it, and the documentary that came out on YouTube not that long ago, um, the 1969 documentary that someone put on YouTube, they took it down again because it's copyright, and BBC got very flustered about the fact that this documentary being uh, put out into the public eye or the public domain. Um, they banned it from being shown again uh, for reasons we can only speculate. But right at the end, there was a clip of the Queen talking about the fact that she was meeting ambassadors, didn't say which one it was, but one of them looked like a gorilla. Um, you know, we can only speculate who she was talking about, but uh, it's not hard to imagine that that was a re reference to um, a, uh, a black uh, ambassador probably from Africa, we don't know, but I mean, it's the sort of term that you would expect to be refer um, used as a racial uh, term of abuse. So, you know, these things, they've got a long history of it. And I think most people, if you think about the kind of family they are, it's like, well, yes, of course, why wouldn't they be? <laughs> That's the, they're, they're not in the kind of modern culture where people are made aware of these things. Even Prince Harry said it in the interview. He said, look, you know, in the environment that I grew up, I wasn't told about things like um, uh, unconscious bias. You know, he said that when I met Megan, she had to sit me down and explain it to me. <laughs> you know, so at least he had the honesty to admit that that's the culture that he comes from. But, um, yeah. Do you think if Charles gets the crown, that would further your cause because he's such a basket case and people look at Camilla and just think this is the usurper who, you know, if, if it wasn't her, maybe Di would still be alive. Well, I mean, I, I don't really, I don't think Camilla's a big problem. I think most people don't really know who she is or care about her. It's all very old news, the whole kind of anti-Diana thing. Um, the question whether she's going to be queen, I mean, you know, if she's married to the king, she's queen, that's the end of it. I mean, that's, that's how it works. But whether she uses the title is um, something else. But I think it's been reported that Charles wants her to use that title, and I imagine she will. The, um, but I think that Charles is the problem. And uh, it's not. It's going to pretty much start from now. I mean, this is, in a sense, the, um, the interview was the starting pistol for the run-up to the succession, because... From now on, we're going to be looking at what happens next, thinking about, you know, the Queen is 94 in April. Uh, no, sorry, 95 in April. Um, and, you know, the odds are that she will die in the next five to ten years. May possibly, given the age of her mother, who reached 102, you know, go a little bit uh, beyond that, but it's highly unlikely. Um, and so the conversation about King Charles is going to be ramping up over the next few years, well before he gets to the throne, assuming that the Queen has a few more years uh, left in. Um, so if if the Queen isn't the last monarch, then I think there's an incredibly high chance that Charles will be. Um, because as I said, that he is eccentric, he is political, he has said enough over the years to annoy most sections of the press as well as you know people on the right people on the left everybody has something to say about him that is not good um there are plenty of people that will you know uh, rave on about uh, his charity work or whatever but um uh the important thing is that i think the whole edifice the whole institution has been protected by this kind of uh aura and firewall if you like of the queen you know um and charles might inherit the crown and the throne but he's not going to inherit that you know he's just not going he just isn't going to get that kind of deference 
and protection. Um, and as I said before, it's just him and him and William, you know, and their wives. That's it. The monarchy will suddenly shrink very rapidly <laughs> down to two people. And with Harry and Meghan on the other side of the Atlantic, constantly reminding people that those who are left standing are not people that you necessarily want to trust or respect. Um, and I suspect also, this is another thing that we'll have to wait and see what happens, but Kate and William's children, um, not too dissimilar age from Harry and Meghan's children, are they not going to be growing up under all this weird uh, environment, looking over the ocean to their cousins and thinking, you know what, I'd much rather be hanging out on the Californian beaches than doing all this nonsense. <laughs> um, and if Harry is correct in saying that William feels trapped in the whole thing, um, maybe we can just do a deal and say, look, guys, you know, you slink off quietly. We'll all pretend that you've done a great job and let's, uh, you know, you can then live privately for the rest of your lives and we'll, um, we'll carry on and elect someone to replace you. So if Charles becomes the king... What automatically happens with Camilla? Does she have any choice in what happens? In terms of whether she becomes queen? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, as, as I I don't know precisely how this is written down in law, but as I understand it, you know, the wife of the king is the queen. I mean, that is just the way it is. I think they would need a... Well, I've certainly read um, in the past that it would need an act of parliament for her not to be queen. Um so I think that, but then again, you know, she is the Princess of Wales, but never, no one ever calls her that um, because of the association of that title with Diana. So we'll have to wait and see. I don't know. I mean, to be honest, the, the, the Camilla thing, I don't really, I don't think it really changed the, the debate because it, it's just arguing over the titles that mean nothing anyway. Um, you know, it really doesn't matter. You know, King, Queen, Duke, Duchess, they're, they're all silly titles that have absolutely no meaning. They are invented to allow the holders of those titles to look down on other people and they should all be gone. So um, I don't really care what silly titles they use. Um, I, I care about the fact that they hold those uh, positions and think that they can look down on the rest of us. All right, I'm going to ask the audience then if they've got any final questions as we round this up. We've got um, Sapphire has said, I was talking about Charles, die, Camilla. Now Camilla's a royal. The irony of all that, no one remembers, but seems hypocritical that the palace would embrace that. And now the stuff with Meghan Harry. I think that's just a general comment. Let's have a look what else there is. Um I live in Canada. We are part of the Commonwealth. My sister who is an entrepreneur has bought and sold land over the years. She told me that a percent when you sell land goes to the crown. I thought, imagine the money is collected for the queen from the Commonwealth every year. Do, do you know whether that's true or not? Graham. I don't know what happens in Canada. I, I, I mean, the, the thing I would say is the crown is not the queen. So this okay. is one of the things that gets confused is that the crown means the British government or possibly means in Canada the Canadian government. Um, and what I'll say on that as a slightly related point is that when people say the Crown of State um, you know, gives money to the Queen or whatever, it's, you know, it's, it's a very separate thing. You know, the Crown of State is ours, it belongs to the government, or to the country, it gives all this money to the government, etc., etc. So the, there is a difference between Crown and, 
and Queen, and I don't know what the situation is in Canada. Hessa wants to know why Meghan and Harry's son will not be given a title. Yeah, I just, I, again, I mean, you know, uh, I got the impression that Meghan doesn't really care about the titles, but cares about why they said that he wasn't going to get one. I don't know. I mean, she seems to, sometimes she, I get the impression she cares a great deal about these things, but watching the interview, I'm not so sure. Um, the way the press are talking about it, they seem to think that she was complaining that right now he's not going to be Prince Archie. But if you watch the interview carefully, you'll see that what they're actually talking about is what happens when Charles becomes king. So the media are saying, oh, well, you know, the, Meghan got it wrong. You know, the great-grandson of the monarch never gets the title, so why is she complaining? But she wasn't saying that. She was saying that when Charles becomes king, he is then the grandson of the monarch, and he should get a title. And, and the claim is, which I believe, is that the various flunkies around the Queen basically said to her, uh, that's not going to happen. You know, we're not going to give Archie a title when Charles becomes king. He's not going to be given the royal security. He's not going to be you know, part of that kind of royal rota of uh, engagements and so on. Um, and bizarrely, apparently, they suggested that Meghan would have to carry on her acting career, which I find quite... I mean, why not carry on the acting career? But I mean, I'm surprised that they thought that was a good idea. But um, so I think the, the question is, why were they wanting him or them to essentially not be included when ordinarily when Charles becomes king, that would be the case. They would probably say, well, the plan is to scale it down. But given the other remarks that are being made, you know, the suspicion is there might be some other motive behind it. Paulie Walnuts has asked whether you believe there's a possibility that Charles is not the father of Harry. <laughs> no, I mean, again, there's two things to this. Harry sees... Charles as his dad and, dad, and Charles sees Harry as his son, and that's really all there is to it, as far as I'm concerned. Um, whether genetically they are, I don't know, but also I don't care because to worry about that is to accept the fact, the idea that the you know, hereditary principle has any validity whatsoever. So, you know, if they say they're father and son, then that's all that's good enough for me. I'm not going to start saying that people have to be. Uh, blood relatives to be father and son. So, um, uh, and I think, um, yeah, it, it, it just buys into this whole. It's one of the. What I would say is a kind of a related point is that royalists are the royal's worst enemies sometimes because they're the ones that will worry about this kind of thing, and this is part of the problem with Meghan, is that they the royalists don't think that she measures up to being royalty. They don't think she's royal enough and good enough for them. So. Um, so they uh, create all these problems, and um, uh, and that is where this kind of worry about you know is Harry the the true heir? I mean, there's no such thing as a true heir, you know. So um, yeah, I neither know nor care. But as far as they're concerned, they are dad and son, and that's good enough for me. Abe wants to know: Do you have any knowledge about the Queen and Prince Philip's visit to Canada in the 1960s? And I think Abe is referring to there's. Um, allegations that some Native American kids went missing around that visit. I don't know anything about that at all, I'm afraid. I've not heard that before. Okay, next question then is, do you believe that the, Queen's, or the Queen will allow her favourite son to face justice in America regarding the Epstein case? 
Uh, no, I mean, there's no way. I'd be amazed if Andrew ever sets a foot in North America ever again. I mean, the, um, I mean, we don't know exactly what he did or didn't do, but the accusations are very serious, and he has claimed uh, that he will fully cooperate. But then the F FBI said, well, he's not really. Um, I mean, as I understand it, Virginia Roberts at the time, um, when she met him in this London address that belonged to uh, Glenn Maxwell, reported uh, sexual offences committed against her to the police, and the police didn't want to know. They were like, well, no, we can't investigate this, it's not enough here, whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, anybody else reporting sexual offences to the police of that nature would get an investigation. Um, and it's our police that need to be asked the toughest questions, really. It's about, you know, why the hell did you not investigate that? So combination of acquiescence and, you know, putting it in the tube hard basket by the police in London and the fact that Andrew's never going to go anywhere near the States, I think that's that's not going to progress very far unless people like Ghislaine Maxwell um, come up with a whole load of uh, damning evidence, which I from what I've seen so far, isn't likely to happen. Might do, but um, yeah, I think he's going to get away with it. Um, whatever it is, whatever it is, but you know, people do say, "Well, you know, innocent until proven guilty," which is true. But we do know that he was friends with Epstein, and we do know that he has lied about his meeting Virginia Roberts because he said he didn't, and we have the evidence that he did. Uh, we know that he was lying when he said he can't sweat, and that was just a weird, <laughs> very weird uh, comment. Um, and we do know that he continued that relationship after Epstein was convicted of sexual offences. So, you know, all of that is enough for him to be um, facing more severe consequences than simply told that he can't go around and wave at people uh, when he wants to or play golf at the taxpayer's expense, which is not much of a punishment. Chris wants to know, what are your thoughts on the conspiracy that the monarchy should be descendants of George Plantagenet, Duke of Clarence? Well, this is going, I, I think I saw some reference to Tony Robinson saying that they're all illegitimate, which I think is the same story that uh, he did a history program several years ago, well, quite a long time ago now, saying that um, the true king of Australia was a, uh, of England, sorry, was a farmer in rural Australia, if you trace it back to the Plantagenets. The problem with that argument is that, um, you know, in 1689, uh, the glorious revelation basically settled the fact that Parliament decides who the monarch is and the line of succession, and then they passed the Act of Succession, 1701, I think it was, um, which specifically says, I mean, this is the madness of British constitutional uh, constitution and British law. There is a law in force in this country today in 2021, which specifically says that our head of state will be the heirs, successors of the Electress of Hanover. Uh, the Electress of Hanover was a position that existed within the Holy Roman Empire, which is the vast expanse of Central Europe that is largely now made up of Germany. Um, Hanover was one of those small states within the empire and the emperor of the uh, early Roman Empire was nominally elected by the electors who were about two dozen 
uh, monarchs and princes from around the empire, of one of which was the Exodus of Hanover. Given all that, um, <laughs> we our current constitution doesn't start with we the people, it starts with our head of state will be the heirs and successors of the electors of Hanover, regardless of who they are. And it was that law that put King George I on the throne, who was something like 55th in line. So that's the law, and that is why they are, by their standards, the legitimate heirs. But again, it goes back to this thing that, you know, we worry about that, then, you know, we're buying into the nonsense of hereditary power. I mean, there's nothing legitimate about the Plantagenet line any more than the Stuart. Okay, next question is... Let's see, where is it? Um, I should say it's not alcoholic, so uh, in case you're worried about me. <laughs> Do you believe the Queen is aware of what the government is doing to children and babies through the social services, referring to as, as it being like state-sanctioned kidnap? So I, I guess this ties into in the crown where we see the guy <coughs> decide that the Queen is so out of touch with what's going on with the injustices in society, he decides to break into her bedroom and have a conversation with her. Do you think that the Queen is aloof to contemporary injustice? I think that question is better rephrased as. Yeah. Well, I'm not... I don't know whether you can still see me now because I've got a message. Yeah, yeah, we can, we, can see, we can see and hear you. You're fine. Keep going. Can you hear me okay? Can you hear me okay? Can you hear me, Graham? Let's see what we can do about this. How's that? Can you hear me? Are you going in the chat? Okay, I saw a message saying that you see and hear both of us, so I'm not sure. I can't see Sean. There you go. Can you refresh uh, refresh your screen? So I will answer that question now. I'm not going to get into individual issues of um, injustices that the Queen may or may not be aware of. What I will say is that... Um, hold on. Okay, so Graham is reconnecting. Will he be clear? Will he be blurry? We will find out. There's been a bit of both on my screen. I'm seeing him clear one minute and then a little bit later goes a bit blurred. In the chat, how are you guys seeing him? Has he been clear the whole time or a bit in and out? Let's see. People blurry, a little grainy. Let's see if I've got to invite him back in. or No, he's coming back in, it's according to this. A tad in and out. I think it's his camera blurred. In and out. In and out. If it's in and out, maybe internet, internet access. Got to have that high speed to do streams. Virgin just increased my high speed now. My There's two numbers upload, download, I think it is. I'm at 700 and... 60 something first number 700 second number 60 something so super fast 
Anyway, if we lose him, I think we're already over time. So I've tried to get all your questions in there. He has been generous going 10 minutes over, so no biggie. Huge thank you to all you guys for doing this on Patreon, enabling us to cover all the costs of getting a three-hour live stream every week with multiple guests like this. And we will keep it going. We will get bigger and more, you know, powerful guests. The more we can do, the more followers, everything else, it's all just building nicely. The fact that we had Corey Feldman on, you know, helps us attract other people of his of his uh, popularity. Hello, Graham. There you are. Can you hear Hi. me now? Hold on. We can can you see you? me? Yeah, well, you're very clear right now on my screen, and I can hear you fine. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, uh, I can. We've gone a bit over time. Do you have time to answer two more questions? Yeah, I don't mind. I'm happy to do that, yeah. So you, we, we left off on the injustices, whether the Queen yeah. was you know, tuned into the contemporary injustices. Um, did you have a little to add to that, or do you want to get to the next question? Well, as any of us, I'm not going to get into individual issues, but I think the Queen really has no idea what's going on in the real world. So, um, you know, famously said that, you know, she goes around thinking the world smells of fresh paint, but um, I don't think she really knows or cares what goes on in the in the real world. Um, she certainly has plenty of information from the government about what's going on, but uh, I don't think she um, she's in a position to really relate to any of it at all. Lesil wants to know, is it possible to be a supporter of the royal family with an eye toward modernity? In the same way, Americans are questioning what it means to be a Democrat or a Republican and what that truly means. Is it possible to be a supporter of the royal family and... With an eye toward modernity. So rather than abolishment, couldn't we just refresh the royal family into a modern um, entity that will be for the greater good of society? No one has ever explained to me what a modern monarchy looks like. They often say that this is this is one or it's moving in that direction. But if someone is inheriting public office, then it shouldn't be there. And if they're not inheriting it, it's not a monarchy. So, you know, it's pretty much a zero-sum game. Um, either we have a monarchy or we don't. And, you know, if it's a monarchy or a smaller monarchy or a more open monarchy or a monarchy with a, you know, multiracial family or whatever it's still a monarchy um and uh you know monarchy is never modern um it's never okay and it should always be got rid of just one question left then from lazile do you think that when william becomes king the relationship between harry archie megan and daughter to be will be revisited revised perhaps when William becomes king, I mean, uh, yeah, yeah, we don't know. I mean, I, you know, I think there's every chance William will not become king. I mean, it could be Charles is what seventy-one. I mean, it could be thirty years before he dies, and um, that's plenty of time for us to get rid of the monarchy. And this, this kind of, if you don't mind me, sort of uh, taking a slight detour into a different uh, question that's not been asked, which is, yeah, <laughs> which go is for the, it. over the next thirty years. 
over the next 10 years, you know, there is no reason why we can't get rid of the monarchy. A lot of people don't get into this issue because they don't think it's something which can happen or will happen. A lot of people that agree with me say, well, yeah, all, all very good, but it's not going to happen. Um, they often say it's not going to happen in my lifetime. It has to happen in someone's lifetime. And big stuff happens normally pretty quickly with and without anybody really expecting it. And the last 50-odd years have shown us countless times that huge change happens quite quickly. There's a grinding slog of people trying to get stuff to change, and then all of a sudden everybody's on board and it goes uh, goes the right way. And that might be gay marriage, which 15 years ago people were still against. Now, you know, if you're still against it now, then people um, will uh, pile on and, and tell you you're homophobic. The idea of having a woman as vice president or a black man as president in the United States would be... No, 20 years ago, people would have said that wasn't going to happen anytime soon, you know, 50 years at least. Um, going back further, the collapse of apartheid and so on. Um, you know, there are so many things that the pressure builds and builds and builds, and then suddenly things move. And I think that, that will that's how it's going to pan out with the monarchy. This is not a, an institution that is immovable and... Uh, undefeatable. It is extremely fragile. Support is high but shallow. It can't get anything right. There is no good argument for it. And increasingly, it is at odds with people's values and expectations of public institutions. Um, everything is going in our way, you know, going out sort of um, in the direction of, of getting rid of it. Um, and it cannot come back from that. Um, Leanne's just popped another question in. What about common law courts? Do you have faith this could prevail? Common law courts? Yeah. Do you have faith they could prevail? I, uh, this, uh, it's not an area that I know a great deal about, to be honest with you. I mean, we are we have common law in this country. It's you know, I don't, I'm not a, an expert in that area, but um, yeah, I'd need to know more specifically about what that's about. But it's not my area of expertise okay tim's just put one up what if scotland goes for independence ireland reunifies is the entire concept of the uk gone um well it would be i mean the <laughs> united kingdom the united kingdom of great britain and northern ireland is the uh, full title we've had that title since uh, just coming up to 100 years actually uh when ireland separated and before that it was the united kingdom of great britain and ireland and that's only going back 200 years um and before that, it was just Great Britain. Um, and Ireland was treated as a, a kind of a colonial um, possession. And um, But the, the United Kingdom bit is the union of the Irish kingdom with the British kingdom. So, yeah, if Ireland goes, then there is no UK. It's just Great Britain. If Scotland goes, then um, but Ireland stays, then it's still the UK. But, you know... Um, if Scotland and Ireland goes, then it's what some people have called uh, Little Britain. But um, I, uh, I don't really have a strong opinion. I, quite frankly, I think it's okay if we all stay together as long as it's what everybody wants. If Scotland wants to go their own way, then great. But my issue is that whether we have, you know, one head of state or two or three, they should all be elected. And whether there's one parliament or two or three, they should all be elected. And we should all live to the highest standards of democracy that we can. Uh, aspire to all right this is definitely the final question thing i've been sat here for four hours i've got to move in a minute and um 
Because last question is from Chad. Are there any good resources to prove that the monarchy costs more than they make? I need to prove my mum wrong. <laughs> well, I mean, the public uh, has a finance report, um, which we're just updating because the last one we did was 2017, and um, it's on the website as a PDF. Um, there are some videos on our YouTube channel as well which go into this. The bottom line is that they cost us something in the region of £345 million every year. Now, that is the equivalent of about 14,000 uh, new nurses' salaries, 15,000 teachers, you know, 15,000 police officers. So it's a, it's a lot of money um, in order to sustain one person. And that's it. That is the cost. There is no payback. There is no money coming back. You know, the tourism figure is nonsense. There is no money that comes into this country through tourism that is... Um, that comes in because we have a monarchy. Um, the only figure that's ever been put out is 500 million, which is a tiny fraction of our tourism revenue as a country, um, less than 1%, I think, or maybe 2% or something. Um, it's, a, it's even smaller, it's like 0.003% of GDP. Um, and even that 500 million figure is not true. So uh, it's not, there's nothing there. The Crown Estate belongs to us and would still come to us in a republic, so there really is this notion that any money comes back because we have the monarchy is uh, completely untrue. It is just cost and no gain. But quite frankly, if someone said to me, if you get rid of the monarchy, it's going to cost you £300 million a year, I would say, that's a bargain. You know, I would happily pay £600 million a year to get rid of the monarchy. <laughs> you know, uh, But it doesn't cost us anything. Uh, it will just be a financial gain, uh, but more importantly, it will make us a, a better democracy and a fairer country. Well, thanks for coming on, Graham. Where can people contact you and support you at? And we will provide those links. Yeah, well, I mean, republic.org.uk is the main website. All the links there. We've got Facebook, Twitter, YouTube channel, which is quite um, going quite well at the moment. And uh, just started Instagram, although there's not much on it at the moment. But, um, yeah, and all the information, you can join. It's a membership organisation. You can join. You can donate. You can. There's a form there if you want to get involved as a volunteer. Um, we've had loads of people signing up there this week. Um, so yeah, I mean we are open to people getting involved wherever you live in the UK, and um, we were going to do events all around the UK uh, until lockdown started, but that will come up again once it's all over. Um, but uh, yeah, there's a ton of stuff that we're trying to do, and plenty of ways people can get involved and uh, and support. Fantastic! It's been a fascinating chat, and would love to get you back on at some point because I can see yeah, you have got loads of knowledge on this. Thank you very much for the invitation. It's been fun. All right. You have a great evening. Cheers, guys. Cheers. Bye. Bye-bye. All right, everybody. It is the final minutes of rounding this up. Again, huge thank you to Ash for coordinating a lot of this and the team, moderators, uh, Amy in Alabama, the viewers, the Patreons, everybody. We're going in a really strong direction. They tried to stop our mission. They failed. Ash has sent me a thing here. Oh, yeah. So I'm going to be filming some great guests here soon, including Peter Walsh, Samantha Brown. You saw some of Samantha the other week when she talked about being grooming into the adult industry. Richard Grennan, Mozambique, Maya Mean Meftahi. Isabel and John Wedger, this is the voodoo. 
satanic, demonic, sexual, trafficked girl, Muhammad Khan. Don't know if you're familiar with those names or not, but they are some of the ones we've got lined up. We've got Ron Swanson, Serial Killers, live stream, 8 p.m. UK Friday. We've got Norman Baker, two-hour true crime podcast going out tomorrow night, 6 p.m. UK. Um, Ash has said we've got Peter Walsh, crime author who specializes in the Northeast, coming on. And let's see, I just got a message from Ron Swanson. Um, he's going to make a trailer, be ready for next week, going to be on fire, my man. Yeah, his channel now, Surviving Life, is almost at 100K subs. Um, I don't know if you saw, but I did a collab last weekend with two quite big YouTubers. Carmen was one, and it was really hard hitting. I'm going to start to put some clips up about that. Um, but that, that brought a lot of new people to the channel. And I think that is everything I can think of right now. Huge thank you again, you know, to the Patreons to make this possible. Is there anything you'd like me to add in here, Ash, before we say goodnight to everybody? If so, send me a message on Skype right now. Otherwise, I'm going to go and grab some fruit, get some veggie sausages on the grill, have a little supper, and get some rest in. Maybe watch... Um, Queen's Gambit. Wow, that is a powerful story. Ash's, Ash's, Ash's final question is, can I go to sleep now? It's the, mid- <laughs> it's the middle of the night in uh, the Philippines. <laughs> you have permission from the viewers to finally go to sleep, Ash. Queen's Gambit, her home girl makes good in the chess world. So moving. So empowering to see her just rise out of that bloody dormitory where they're drugging the kids, scumbags, and um, to see her become an international chess champion. All right. Good night, everybody. It's been a blast. Can't wait for next week. Let me click end broadcast. Huge thank you for tuning in, for sharing, liking, and supporting what we're doing. See you next week, same time. Take care out there. Good night. Bye-bye.